WAPG Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 275. Listening to the Airline Pilot Guys show, the view from our side of the cockpit door. I'm Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 824 in the Sheraton Hotel, downtown Springfield, Massachusetts. In today's episode, a lithium ion battery fire, which uh, resulted in a diversion, um, a freight flight crash in Nepal, more news, your feedback, and a new Plain Tales episode, D Day. Part 2. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seat backs in your upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. Flight 275 is ready for pushback. Hello everyone and welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy show. It's an aviation podcast. And today, at least so far, there are three of us and we are all airline pilots. We're all airline pilot guys. And let's introduce the first one. He is... Normally, coming to us from across the pond, but uh, he is in the States right now in the New York City area. A wide bus, a wide bus, a wide body Airbus <laughs> captain, extraordinaire Captain Nick Anderson. <laughs> Hi there, Jeff. I quite like being a wide bus. I don't know why. Wide bus. It's not very nice thing to be, but there you go. <laughs> Uh, anyway, it's a pleasure to be here, both in New York and on your show. Had a great layover. I know we're probably going to talk about it late, later, but yeah. this has been one of the best layovers I've had uh, in New York for many a year. And, uh, um, you know, I actually do love being uh, in this city. It's great. And uh, it's real nice to uh, be with you guys again and uh, looking forward to a great show. I can't wait to hear of all the uh, goings-ons in uh, New York City. I know part of it, but I, I have a feeling that uh, you actually experienced more more fun stuff after I left. Um, also joining us, the other airline pilot on the panel right now, uh, he is a former regional pilot and now a mad dog Operator extraordinaire and soon to be captain, Captain Dana. Well, hey, APG community, it's great to be back uh, once again, joining Jeff and Nick uh, on another fantastic show, 275. Looking forward to talking about uh, how that meetup went in New York and all the uh, latest and greatest news and feedback from everybody today. So, looking forward to another great show with the with everybody today. Awesome. And so glad that you were able to make it uh, this week. So nice to be able to have uh, at least three of us available here. And as I mentioned earlier, we're hoping that uh, Dr. Steph will have a chance to join us as uh, the show progresses. Captain Nick mentioned that he's in New York City, and he also hinted at a meetup. And uh, we indeed had a wonderful time on Monday night. And uh, in fact, as Captain Nick was flying, uh, operating a flight inbound for, uh, for Acme Red from London, uh, coming into John F. Kennedy International. I was riding as a passenger, non-revving, 
and um, missed my first flight, but I got the second one. And it turns out that that was probably the one I should have gone for to begin with because I landed approximately the same time that uh, you did, Captain Nick. I guess maybe just right right ahead of you. I think you were just a trifle behind me because oh, we okay. pulled off to two left and uh, we turned right on Juliet and motioned up to wait to cross two two right to get to our parking position. And um, they we had a Swiss Air 330 in front of us and they told us both to hold. And uh, promptly a mad dog landed and rolled out in front of us about, um, you know, 100 feet away. And I, I said to my first officer, oh, look, there's one of those crap airplanes that uh, <laughs> Captain Jeff flies. <laughs> Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm only joking. Yeah. I'm only joking. I, no, I love the mad dog. I, I've only had one flight and I thought it was brilliant. Anyway, um, and it's marvelous to be flying a, a you know a lovely airplane with so much character. So uh, <laughs> yes. I had no idea you. While well, I was watching you, you were peering out of one of those little portholes watching me. Wasn't I was. Cool? I was uh, sitting in like 13D, and I uh, we crossed. Uh, we landed on two. I could tell we landed on two two right. We pulled off on the other side of uh, one three right, three one left, and uh, obviously given crossing clearance. And then as soon as the uh, jet crossed the runway we kind of abruptly uh slowed down and i kind of looked out the window to see what was going on and then i see this big old jet airliner an a340 600 with uh acme red uh, emblazoned all over it and i'm thinking huh talking about perfect timing yeah, yeah, absolutely now a 30 i did actually see some pressed ham against one of those windows <laughs> it was, was that yeah. it was not me it was captain <laughs> al okay i must have been some other airbus hater <laughs> so uh yeah so we uh got together there uh, met in the international terminal actually outside of the uh, international terminal and uh waited for uh, a bus for quite some time and i'm glad to see it's not just acme crews that have to sometimes wait for golden touch transportation um, oh, i had to pinch it from uh, away from uh, an emirates crew there was this huge emirates crew. i thought they released three aircraft full but it was one uh 380 crew there were just dozens of them and they'd been waiting slowly gathering into this enormous crowd and the the big coach pitched up and i had to sneak past them and grab the driver and say hey look this is my crew bus don't right. let that lot in here <laughs> yeah we've been waiting for at what 45 minutes an hour or something like that before the bus yeah, arrived absolutely so uh, it, and it's pretty rare because normally they've got a bunch of those buses sitting there and we just yeah. grab the next one in line so uh, i have to say not a bad bus company it's the first time in a long time i've had to hang about yeah and uh, the traffic was just horrible for some reason that day um everywhere and so it took some time for us to get to uh, Manhattan, but we uh, finally arrived right at about the time we said we'd be meeting in the lobby. And uh, as we did, um, oh, this is the uh, this is kind of an, an unusual thing. Um, this gentleman walks up and and he walks into the lobby. Uh, I, I see, of course, uh, Captain Jeff, uh, Colonel Jeff, we're calling him now, came up uh, on the train from Pennsylvania. 
Um, and, uh, so I'm talking to him and this guy kind of taps me on the shoulder and he's got this big beard and he, and he said, hi, uh, are you captain Jeff? I said, yes. And I'm thinking, well, this obviously is somebody who is here for the New York city meetup. And he said, uh, Hey, I was just at the Starbucks across the street and I was looking over here and I thought, well, that kind of looks like captain Jeff. And then he said, is is that captain Nick outside too? <laughs> I said, yeah. And so I'm, I'm realizing at this point, Oh, wait a minute. He's not here for the meetup. He just happened to be at the Starbucks across the street. Uh, his name, Yossi, I think he was what he said. His name was, uh, works for B and H photo. And, uh, so he, uh, he wasn't there at all for the meetup. In fact, he had to, he had to go on and, and, uh, do some things with his life. And, um, uh, but it was kind of cool seeing Yossi, um, there, uh, just, uh, you know, small world, I guess, about the only thing you can say about that. Absolutely. We, we, I'm pretty sure we've had a meetup before. It was probably close to a year ago. And uh, a couple of the guys uh, said, uh, oh, if you're in New York, perhaps we could get together for lunchtime coffee. And uh, they both work at BNH and uh, they were uh, on a lunchtime break. So we just got together. They didn't have very long for a break, uh, you know, perhaps 20 or 30 minutes. So uh, we grabbed a quick coffee and talked to airplanes for a bit, shook their hands, and uh, then I got an email uh, saying that um, there'd be a present waiting for me the next time I went to B&H Photo, and when I checked in there, I got a free B&H Photo baseball cap, which was brilliant, which I wear a lot when I fly, actually, because it's kind of perfect when the the sun's uh, in in your eyes. So, uh, yeah, it was uh, super to shake his hand again. It was yeah. very nice. There were, I'm, I'm trying to think of the name of the other guy off the top of my head. Uh, Jonathan sort of rings a bell, but mm-hmm. I probably got that wrong. So my my problems, uh, apologies, Yoshi, you and your friend. It was great to meet you a year ago and great to meet you uh, yesterday. Yeah. And then uh, slowly but surely, more folks started walking into the lobby area as uh, Captain Nick was up in his room changing out of his uniform. Uh, let's see, Dan uh, came in and he uh, works as an operations officer over at uh, Teterboro. And uh, let's see, Jonathan, um, who is a, uh, a college uh, professor and uh, aviation geek. And uh, he came over from uh, Queens, Astoria. And uh, I was... I think that was all of us, right? Or oh no, no. That was a playwright. Who was the playwright? Yeah, that's uh, Jonathan. He's a playwright, and he's also a, a college professor, I believe. Brilliant. And um, anyway, so a big group of us started gathering in the lobby, and Captain Nick comes down, and we all say, "Okay, let's go. Let's walk over to Beer Authority." So we walked a couple blocks to the north. And uh, it was a great uh, venue for our meetup. And uh, while we were there enjoying the beer and company and great food, I uh, went around with the H5 and made a recording. And honestly, I have not listened to this. And so we're going to kind of all screen it together. Hopefully there's nothing bad in inside of this. <laughs> so uh, let's give it a shot. Well, folks, I'm here at the Beer Authority in New York City. We're having a great APG meetup here. My voice, as you can tell, is not quite 100%, but it's getting better. Of course, uh, all the noise here and uh, beer drinking, I'm yelling a lot, so it's getting worse. But uh, let me walk over here to our table. Looks like we have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, about ten of us right now, and a couple have already come and gone. Uh, but let's uh, 
let's get a little bit of audio from some of those who are here with us right now. And I'm going to walk over here to uh, Lennon. So, Lennon, I'm doing a little uh, recording for the uh, show, and I just wanted to, you want to say something to the uh, community uh, about, uh, you know, how fun it is to be with folks who are uh, like-minded? Yes, this has been a terrific experience. I'm, I'm, I'm very glad I actually took the time to come in and join in. I'm actually speechless. Everybody has been very, very friendly, uh, very informative. We have chatted for, 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 for very kind. Don't know how to even describe it. Well, uh, it's it means so much for us for you to take time to come out and uh, be a part of this, and uh, because uh, this community is just amazing. And thank you. It was nice meeting you. Man. Over here is a, a guy that we all know as Ken Kranz, but we all know him as Big Data Ken. And uh, so let's hear what he has to say. Well, thanks. It's great to be here. It's great to finally meet you and uh, Captain Nick. We've been talking forever. We never really had a chance to meet. And it's uh, great just hanging out with a bunch of aviation people, uh, especially when they're willing to put up with somebody who's also in the unmanned side of the world. So... Uh I don't know how he got in. He's in the unmanned side of the world, but uh, no, I'm just kidding. Yeah, we're, it's, it's all flying, right? It's all flying. Hey, uh, this guy over here, David Abbey, you've heard from him before, but let's hear from him again. Hey, Dave. Oh, hello, everyone on APG. Uh, this is Dave Abbey, and I'm probably repeating whatever other, everybody else said, but it is such a great time being here at the Beer Authority with... Captain Jeff, Captain Nick, Colonel Jeff, Hillel, uh, and quite a few people I've never met before. And Jeff, uh, broken record continues that you are uh, a great catalyst, if that's the right term, for making this community great. And we thank you for everything. Wow. Thank you very much, Dave. You didn't need to say that. I do appreciate it, though. It's always good to see you. Yeah. You can pay me later okay. for saying that. How much do I owe you now? 20? 50? We'll talk off the record. Okay. okay. <laughs> uh, this guy, I kind of hesitate to give the microphone to, but you all know him as that guy that uh, does the Slack announcement at the end of our show. It's Hillel. Greetings, everybody. How are you doing? <clears throat> um, well, this is another fine event that uh, Jeff has put together, and uh, the community is just so much fun. It's one of those things that's guaranteed good time. Any opportunity you have to find a meetup, please do what you can to make some time for it. You'll never regret it. And that's not to make anybody jealous. Just if you'll have an opportunity sometime in the future. Just take it, and you're going to enjoy the heck out of it. So this is a lot of fun. I'm glad I made the trek up by train, and I'm looking forward to doing more of these whenever I can and whenever that might be. Hillel has the... Uh what would you say? The, uh, the, uh, I'm trying to think of the word, but he was at one of the first APG meetups ever that we did in Baltimore. Distinction, thank you. I guess I'm tired and I've had too much beer. <laughs> uh, but yeah, he was at one of the very first APG meetups in uh, Baltimore, Maryland. And, uh, and he continues to be a strong supporter of the show, and we, we really appreciate that. This guy over here, he's, he's very famous here in New York City. He's known as New York City Mike. I'm not sure he understands how 
famous he is. It's kind of like the Wiz from uh, Seinfeld, I think. Uh, although he doesn't, he's not wearing a crown. Hey, Mike. Hey, everyone. Uh, it's great to be here and meet everyone. And uh, we were just discussing uh, who could fly the 3-1 visual approach into LaGuardia better um, between uh, both Captain Jeffs. Uh, and it got pretty heated. I mean, uh, people are throwing slurs at Acme and other airlines and uh, saying they couldn't fly the approach. So uh, I'm just happy I wasn't involved and got to kind of listen on the sidelines. But great times and uh, hope to meet other people soon. Yeah, it was, it was pretty nasty, and um, I'm surprised that Jeff stooped to such a low point. But, uh, you know, what do you say? It's Captain Jeff. Not me, the other guy. This guy here is, uh, we have Philip and Tanya, and uh, they're new to our community. And you don't have to say anything if you don't want to. Okay. Well, we'll, let, we'll def defer to the beautiful one here, Tanya. My name is Tanya, and uh, I've, I'm very new to the Airline Pilot Guy podcast, but I find it like so fascinating and so much fun, and I absolutely now have APG syndrome. Uh-oh. <laughs> yes. And just a shout-out to Dr. Steph, because I'm representing the ladies for us tonight. And uh, shout-out to everyone who's a listener. I can tell you have like a wonderful community, and we're so happy to be here tonight. My, my friend... Uh, my friend Philip is here, and I, I would like him to talk a little bit about uh, flying to China. No, uh, well, I, I was working uh, with uh, CBS News, and we ended up uh, covering the Boston Symphony, and this was the first 747 that went into China. And when I first got over the mainland, I looked out the window, and it was totally black. There was absolutely no lights over the land. I imagine the tallest buildings in Shanghai were the old hotels that were there before the revolution. And I imagine I haven't been back since then, and I imagine the place is totally different now. Oh, yeah, I'm sure it is completely. You wouldn't recognize it, I imagine. I've never been there myself. But. Oh, I, it, it was very... Uh, it was, it, we had the whole... We took over the whole 747, the Boston Symphony, with Ozawa, and we had the whole plane to ourselves. We could go in the back and sleep on the long flight. We stopped off in, in Alaska on the way there, and it was quite an experience. And the 747 was our sort of our coach that picked us up and took us from place to place. I can't imagine a better way to go. Yeah. And, and being with such a, a fantastic group of talented professional musicians. I recorded audio on that, and so now I'm nervous on being the other side of the mic. I'm nervous because I'm the one that's recording, you know, controlling the levels and everything else, and I'm sure I'm screwing it up. But, so hopefully uh, he won't uh, critique me when he hears this. <laughs> Thank you, Philip. All right, so I'm going to walk around the table here a long way around, and uh, we're going to talk to, uh, well, I don't know how am I going to do this. I'm going to squeeze between uh, Dave Abbey and Hillel. And we're going to talk to uh, Dan. How you doing? Um, what, what do I say? <laughs> well, you can uh, just tell everybody, and uh, this is the regular podcast, the APG community, listening to the show, and just uh, just tell us who you are and why you're here. All right, cool. Um, well, my name is Daniel Renault. Um, I'm very excited to be here. It's the uh, first time that I uh, get to do one of these meetups, and it's uh, been 
quite interesting getting to meet everyone and talk to everyone, especially you, Captain Jeff. Uh, listen to your podcast quite regularly. Um, I am, of course, behind, so I am trying to catch up and everything. But uh, 175, this is uh, 175 strong, and keep on going and look forward to more. Um, and I look forward to another meetup because this has been a lot of fun. Yeah, this this is like the best part of doing the show is, is just doing these meetups and meeting uh, the community. We had a great conversation earlier in the hotel lobby about uh, episode 175, and I think that was the episode where, uh, or right around the time when uh, I went from a solo show to a panel show. So, uh, yeah, that's uh, kind of history in the APG community. Now... I'm not really sure I want to uh, do this, but uh, I'm going to go ahead and give the microphone to this dude. You might recognize his voice. Hang on. Snotty Boeing 737. Okay, so obviously he's dissing the uh, the Boeing community as as he is want to do. Hang on. Hello, Jeff. Thank you for that. What are we talking about now? We're just uh, telling everybody about what a grand time we're having here together talking aviation and uh, talking about uh, how wonderful the Boeing is. Oh, and it is. Absolutely great. I can't believe these wonderful people have come to join us today. It is an absolute pleasure to meet them all. Some uh, great new uh, listeners from all sorts of backgrounds. We've had uh, a guy here who was a playwright. We haven't got many of those. They're there, like as rare as hen's teeth. We've got other guys who are thinking about starting a new career in aviation and want to talk about that. We've got some old hands. And we've got uh, Colonel Jeff here, who flies uh, an ancient old Boeing. So uh, it's just fun to take the piss out of him. <laughs> well, you know how Captain Nick feels about the Boeing and the rudder and all that kind of stuff, the 737 especially. But uh, anyway, always great to, uh, to meet Captain Nick in person. He's such a good friend of mine. And, uh, and even though he kind of jazzes against... You know the Boeing and, and all his talk about the Airbus. He's he's still a good guy. We still love him. And then uh, finally, I'm going to try to stick my microphone in here and get a little bit of uh, the other Captain Jeff. Here we go. Yes, sir. Hello, everybody. This is the other Captain Jeff here in New York at the Beer University, having a great time. The old 737 Captain Jeff. I'm a 737 Captain Jeff, not the yeah, Mad the Dog. The old, the ancient, the decrepit, <laughs> the knackered old, the anything else? And that's the old Dot Pilot talking <laughs> there. Yes, okay, Grandpa. <laughs> and having a great time meeting a bunch of APG syndrome uh, sufferers like myself. Having a great time and uh, enjoying myself. So couldn't make Pittsburgh. Like Pip, I wasn't in Pittsburgh. Sorry. <laughs> Well, we missed you, and uh, but you were with us in spirit. All right. Well, that's it. Uh, uh, again, as a, uh, somebody had mentioned uh, earlier that uh, we had uh, John, who uh, had to leave early and he, because he uh, teaches school. He had to grade some papers. He's also a playwright, a very talented person. And uh, he just, you know, he's not a pilot. He uh, flies on airplanes, and uh, he just loves listening to all of us talk about aviation and uh, our little small part in it. Yeah, as I imagine many of you out there uh, can kind of relate to. All right, well, that's enough Enough of me blabbing on. You're going to hear me blab on in the show anyway, so I'll go ahead and just end this right now. So great time had by all here at the Beer Authority, New York City, June 5th, 2017.
so that was a little a little taste of um, the the meetup that evening, and I think uh, that accounted for everyone except uh, Radio Roger, who showed up after his shift uh, a little after nine o'clock. It was uh, nice meeting him, and uh, oh, we had a had a bang up time. It was. It was. Uh, there's some really nice mix of people. Uh, some really in, real enthusiasts. Uh, in fact, everyone's enthusiastic, both for aviation and the show, Jeff. So, uh, you know, it's always a delight, an absolute delight. For those of you who aren't able to make it, um, we're, we're sorry, but uh, we're going to be doing meetups um, in the future at various locations around the world. And uh, speaking of that, uh, and we'll get to uh, the rest of your layover here in just a second, uh, Captain Nick, but uh, I thought I'd talk about this while I'm thinking about it. Tomorrow, uh, I'm on a four-day trip, and this is the first day. It was a tough day, one leg all the way up here to Bradley International. It was like one hour and 45 minutes. <sighs> it was a whole working day. Yeah. And uh, tomorrow, it's a, a little bit longer. We go from here to uh, Minneapolis and then Minneapolis to San Jose. So it's basically coast to coast. And when I get out to uh, San Jose, I'm going to meet up with Fred Sampson and we're going to go flying. And I'm not sure what it is we're going to fly, but uh, I'm sure that it's going to be a blast. And I'll definitely take uh, recording gear with me and hopefully uh, be able to take some video and and audio for sure and then after our afternoon of flying we're going to head over to fault line brewing company in sunnyvale and we're going to have a meetup out there so uh, i hope that uh, those who are listening now uh, if you have time you know you won't you'll not you'll not hear this before our meetup tomorrow on the 8th of january but i mean uh, june but i'm hoping that you're uh, uh, keeping track of everything uh, via slack and facebook and twitter because i posted a couple times on that regarding our meetup tomorrow afternoon tomorrow evening so that's going to be a, a fun time as well i'm sure so just wanted to mention that uh, details can be found by uh, looking at the airline pilot guy facebook page and uh, following us on twitter and slack so um tell me uh captain nick you uh that was just the first night of your layover in new york city um but you're still there so what happened after the after the meetup uh, i've decided to become an american citizen and then i'm going to fly <laughs> to my greek card no um i, I don't uh, i don't fly home till uh just about two or three hours time i'm leaving the hotel but yesterday i was on uh, standby for a little bit because uh just in case they um one of the uh bin liners uh, goes us uh, and they have to substitute an airbus uh, which is quite common because uh, the Airbuses always work and the Boeings rarely do, um, then um, we have to have an Airbus crew in position here in uh, JFK uh, in case an Airbus lands uh, unexpectedly, and then we've got someone to fly at home. So uh, yesterday morning, of course, you and I met up for breakfast. Uh, you came down from your hotel on the way to Penn Station and uh, then wending your way back to JFK. So we had a lovely breakfast in the TikTok diner, which uh, is one of my favorites. I used to come here before uh, we moved to this hotel because it's actually part of the base of the hotel. Uh, so that was kind of cool. 
and uh, apparently New York grits uh, are okay. And I looked yeah. at them and I don't care. I said I don't care whether they're made down south or made in New York. They, they look horrible. <laughs> <laughs> they tasted wonderful, actually. Um, I love it's grits. Got to be an acquired taste, I'm sure. Oh, oh. Absolutely, yes. Me, I'm from the north. You I probably need to either start at the age of two and force be forced. No, them. you just haven't had a had good grits. <laughs> Uh, anyway, we had a lovely breakfast, and uh, then Dave Abbey got in touch with me. So we once so I was clear and free from standby, um, we got together, and he had a great idea. He said, um, look, there's a great show. I've seen it. Uh, it's really good. And I knew Steph uh, had raved about it. It's called The Book of Mormons. It's a musical here in Broadway. And um, uh, David knew uh, a great way to, to get a ticket. So uh, we met and went to the, uh, um, the 5 o'clock um, I won't call it a raffle. It's a uh, a draw, a lottery, a lottery for the tickets. So we filled out our little cards, and um, you know they had fifteen really good front row seats that were going to be available for this lottery, and there were about thirty or forty of us uh, applying for them. Uh, so unfortunately, uh, David and I didn't get those. But the set, the fallback plan was to buy a standing seat. Standing seat. <laughs> That's an oxymoron if ever I heard one. <laughs> or a sitting it's a stand. Spot at the back of the uh, exactly right. A spot at the back of the uh, stalls, and it's not a big theatre, so even there, you're, you're still plenty close enough to uh, work out what's going on. Uh, so just behind the last uh, row of stalls, there's a rail, and uh, you can just lean against that rail. You've got a little uh, brass plaque with your number on, so you know where to stand. And uh, those tickets were like. Uh, Twenty-seven bucks or something—they were cheap as chips. So uh, that was brilliant. We uh, we stood in uh, at the back of the show and uh, watched it and thoroughly enjoyed it. What a great, funny! Uh, I'm going to see it again because there were so many jokes and they were some of them were just flying over my head. I, they were coming thick and fast, and it was such a great show. I'm going to next trip. I'm going to definitely go back again and try and get a. Uh, uh, one of the decent seats in that lottery, or um, I'll just stand again. Doesn't matter. It's only a couple of hours standing, and you've got uh, you know a shelf to lean on, so uh, it was no penalty. And uh, I just thoroughly enjoyed it. That was great. So, thank you very much indeed uh, to David Abbey for sorting that out and showing me the ropes. And uh, we had a a beer and a bite to eat before we went into the shows. And uh, he had to get off for an early start this morning. I think he's doing uh, grand jury duty. Um, and of course, I had to uh, get in, so because I was feeling pretty weary, um, my body clocks—it was like in the wee hours again. So uh, no, that was—it's been a great layover, absolutely fabulous. Couldn't have asked for a nicer time. Excellent! Wow, awesome. So now, Dana, you were on a trip, so you weren't able to join us in New York um, on Monday not. night. But uh, anything uh, interesting, unusual happen on your trip or in your life recently? Yeah, well, we had a, a, a mechanical issue in Memphis that grounded the airplane for a better part of uh, 24 hours. And it was a, one of those uh, rolling delay um, fun days where... They didn't even notice notify us before we left the hotel to go to the airport in Memphis. We get to the airport. Um, we kind of knew that it was already delayed because we kind of cheated. We always check before you go to the airport, but figured we might as go anyways. And indeed, it was delayed. Um, talked to the agent and figured out it was uh, 
uh, a wound to the airplane that they had to heal. Apparently, some debris had hit it somehow, somewhere. Um, So uh, they had to fly in all types of people from Mecca and uh, have it repaired from the maintenance perspective. And they ended up putting us in a hotel, which, by the way, is right next to a lot of people who can be jealous of this, but Graceland. Quite literally two houses down from get the hotel, like a, a gift shop, then Graceland. And it took a couple of nice photos. Elvis, of course, had his own fleet of aircraft. Um, had a, uh, I think it was a Convair and uh, a Jetstar, I think it is. I think I just two- saw something recently in the news that uh, they're selling uh, the jet. Is that right? Really? Yeah. Hmm. I think uh, somebody sent me um, an email that said, uh, you know, looks like um, his jet is for sale uh, if it, if the APG wants to purchase it or something like that. So I forgot. Well, who we, sent should, that we, should, we should take up and, yeah. uh, you know, we'll, we'll paint the APG and, and put on the side APG syndrome. Uh, be there you go. <laughs> and we could have, you know, we could have the music playing as we, we're going down the runway and, yeah, it's uh, so. I had uh, had uh, the layover there and and spent uh, the entire afternoon waiting for them to call me and uh, the captain and myself after we had a very nice barbecue lunch. Walked uh, about it was about a mile. Uh, his phone had passed away, uh, so we had to have that rectified and fixed. So we went and bought him a new phone, and uh, he bought the phone. I didn't buy it for him. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's not we. Uh, so we had had a very nice barbecue lunch afterwards, walked back to the hotel, found out that the aircraft was now delayed until after 8 o'clock in the evening, which made us uh, illegal. Uh, it's a long day because they never did, in fact, put us back into rest. So they figured all that out and said, well, why don't you guys just spend the night and we'll see you in the morning. Take the same flight out you're supposed to fly yesterday. And we did with the same broken airplane that was now fixed. Uh, so it's had a very, uh, very fun evening. Met uh, some really good people at the pool. Uh, f- four, uh, four people from Ireland. Two currently living in Canada, and their parents from Ireland, and they uh, were over to see Elvis. And another interesting couple from New York, and uh, another girl from, I want to say, Indiana. It was in the, it was someplace in in the, in the uh, central U.S. and then uh, somebody else from Nashville and uh, of course my captain that I was flying with and we we all had a very pleasant afternoon. Then good part of it was I'm now able to be here with the APG uh, podcast because we got rerouted and as a result of the reroute lost the afternoon flying and worked out pretty good to my favor this time. So, so they eventually week. found the speed tape, did they, uh, Dana? No, they. It was bubble gum and scotch tape. Oh, that's not bad. That's that's a good fix. That is, yeah. Well, now they really shouldn't say scotch tape. It's 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 not speed. It's not actually scotch tape. It's what they use fix everything down here in the south with. That would be duct tape. That's right. <laughs> Excellent. Or if they had really thought about it, they could have uh, slapped some uh, grits to it and let it let them dry. And then it would have been good as having the metal steel. on them. Yeah, yes. good as steel. There you go. Yes. Um, so, seeing a lot of interesting. It was it was fun. Excellent. 
All right. Uh, anything else to say before we move on to the coffee fund? Don't think so. All right. Don't think Let's so. Let's do it then. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the Java Java and it loves me. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. That is the Ink Spots, recorded in 1940, the Java Jive. We're talking about the airline pilot guy. Coffee Fund, your way to support the show in a financial manner. And since the last show, we have had several contributions. Let's see. Uh, let's start with... Um, I think Bernard, Bernard Holeli. Uh, I'm not sure if that's the right way to pronounce your last name or not, but it sounds good to me. Uh, Jonathan Alexandratos, which I, th- I believe is our uh, playwright uh, in New York City, uh, Captain Nick. Uh, Eric Wallace, uh, Jeff Moeller, who I hope to see uh, tomorrow at the meetup in Northern California. Uh, he's a, uh, he sends us a recurring payment every month, and so thank you for, very much for that, Jeff. And Tanya, Tanya Wyman, who uh, we met uh, along with her friend Philip um, on Monday night. It was uh, such a pleasure, and thank you for your very generous contribution, Tanya. We do appreciate that. And the other way to contribute to the show is via Patreon. You can become a patron of the show by pledging a certain amount per episode. And since the last show, we've had a few uh, new patrons. We have uh, Michael Coe. And then Michael, that's M-I-C-H-A-L. We're assuming that's the way you pronounce your name. And uh, a new pledge by Jordan Rose, who is with us in the chat room. Lives in Northern California or in that area. And he said, unfortunately, he's not going to be able to make it. I think Jordan, uh, he's in the Fresno area, so it's not quite in uh, the San Jose Bay area. Uh, But... um, Anyway, we're going to miss you, and uh, thank you for becoming a patron. And if you want to do so and become part of the Coffee Fund cadre, you can head over to AirlinePilotGuy.com slash coffee and learn all about it. Again, thank you so much for all of your financial contributions. I love the Java Java and it loves me. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. Stand by for news. Now, I know that uh, other shows have talked about this. Uh, this actually occurred on the 30th of May. Um, it was a JetBlue Airbus uh, A321. And we kind of, in an indirect way, referred to this incident where they had a, um, a laptop uh, battery, lithium-ion battery, catch fire. And they were uh, going from New York, uh, JFK, to San Francisco. 
and they diverted into Grand Rapids. And on the Aviation Herald website, uh, they just had an update to the um, to the incident. And uh, again, just clarifying that it was the uh, the battery of a passenger's laptop that had caught fire. Um, and uh, let's see, the aircraft remained on the ground for about two and a half hours, and then they continued the journey, reached San Francisco with a delay of about three hours. Emergency services reported they were alerted to a backpack by a passenger which contained a laptop and a charging device which had emitted smoke and was found with a small burn hole at its side. It turned out during subsequent investigation that a second charging device and a second set of batteries were in the side pocket of the backpack. The battery overheating had been located in the side pack side pocket of the backpack, which contained no other items and was identified to be an LG HG2 18650 lithium ion battery. Check yours. See if yours is the uh, LG HG2 18650, um, which, according to the passenger owning the backpack, was used to operate a portable fan in the checked luggage. That's a pretty big, uh, it's a 3,000 um, uh, milliamp per hour battery, which is uh, uh, quite a, a sizable one. And so I guess now that I'm reading this, it turns out it wasn't actually the uh, laptop that. Uh, caught on fire but the actual battery the extra uh, external battery and the fact that uh, it was being charged or something so that's interesting do you reckon it was one of these uh, batteries that um sits in some devices sorry uh, you, you can get a you can get a piece of carry-on luggage that has its own power source and oh. you can kind of plug your phone into it and charge anything from it but it's integral to the bank pack or to the hand luggage or whatever um do you, do you think it was one of those or was it just his second laptop battery i think that um based on the way they're wording this in aviation herald it sounds like it was just a backpack that had a couple of these batteries inside um and yeah. anyway you know the the debate goes on of course um, most everyone says look we can't put these things in the cargo hold uh, because, um, you know, that they don't require oxygen. Uh, basically, once these things start uh, overheating, uh, they, they're they almost impossible to, to put out. And uh, you have to, you know, dunk them in water and do some special things to them. And if we had them in a, in a, in a passenger hold, you know, even though we have the fire suppression systems on our, uh, in our cargo holds, they really, those things, systems are designed to basically snuff out any oxygen so that there's you know no way that they can burn but in this case the this kind of technology i don't think that's going to stop uh and uh what do they call it a runaway battery so um now, now lg a, a reputable manufacturer it's not like yeah. one of these companies you've never heard of uh, right they produce good quality goods so i would expect this battery to be uh, uh, self-regulating. But of course, one thing you can't account for, if it's outside of its laptop or what no device it normally sits in, it's just sitting in a side pocket, it's very easily get it damaged. And there's not a lot of protection if you smack the, a battery and damage the internal parts. It, you know, it can just start um, uh, running away. It can just start uh, short circuit and that'll lead to a thermal runaway so uh, I, I'm, responsible people should be putting these spare batteries into a protective case that has got padding on it and making absolutely certain there's no way it can get damaged yep well and i have a question 
uh, you know, we carry around a, a lithium-ion battery. It's, it's uh, I would say, better part of eight inches long and probably three inches wide and probably about an inch thick. And it's it's a heavy-duty lithium-ion battery. And mm-hmm. I don't know where you carry yours, Jeff, but I have, a, you know, a side case in my uh, in my bag that's not a padded case, but it's a side case. And lo and behold, that's, uh, that's being exposed to, you know, being moved around. And, of course, you know, when, when you get on and off the, the uh, van going to and from the hotel, they're not exactly gentle all the time with, with no. the bags. So, you know, that, that, uh, that's interesting because we, we are so reliant on that, and every one of us carries one of those. Yep. Um, do you, Nick, Nick, what do you guys use for, for uh, all your charts and all your manuals? What do you do? You carry paper plates still, or no, no. We we use a, uh, in fact, this very uh, iPad Air too, and um, we have a power source uh, which is um, just to the base of uh, um, sort of the area where you put your um, flight bag beside your seat. And you can plug in a charger and a standard uh, cable into that. So we don't need any additional batteries to run it. Wow. Yeah, I think that uh, Acme um, is going to be in the process of making all um, cockpits uh, in our fleet that way as well. So we don't, you know, that's part of the aircraft system. So we don't have to use a battery uh, to keep our devices charged up. So one hopes so. I mean, and they're also... Uh um, I've yeah. got confirmation that they are actually testing the iPad product. What online for? Yeah, because this uh, the the surface is turning out to be a, a real big issue. Well, okay, I'm not going to get into it, but uh, they should have made that decision <laughs> in the a first place. Yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah. So oh, I can get a a secondhand uh, yeah. surface yeah. device pretty soon. I got one right here for you. <laughs> so I've got a boat bits. anchor for you. <laughs> That's great. Now, gentlemen of interest, gents. Uh, now we have adopted a new piece of technology on our aircraft. Should we get one of these uh, laptop or battery fires? And it consists of uh, both the front and the back of the aircraft. We have fireproof bags. They're pretty large. Um, and uh, the system is that uh, if we get one of these um, laptops that's um, burning, uh, the cabin crew throw a liter of water into this bag and then grab the um, device, uh, throw it in, seal it up, and then throw a little port in the corner. They just fill it up with a many other liters i don't know there there's an exact amount written on it i think at least another five or ten liters of water and then completely seal it down and that cools and uh, dampens down the fire and because it's a fireproof uh, device it keeps it all uh, sealed and safe so uh, is that common have you heard of that being used in other airlines and do you have it Yes, uh, I remember seeing a, a memo um, several months back that said that they were uh, installing these and they were going to start with our wide-body international uh, jets uh, with those kind of devices or kits or whatever you want to call it to uh, handle that kind of – it sounds, yeah. from your description, sounds very similar to what I remember reading in the memo. And then uh, it'll finally trickle down to all fleets and maybe even eventually the fleet that uh, Dana and I fly. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> yeah, well, to, to be fair, you guys are, are rarely more than 
20 or 30 minutes away from a, a, an emergency right. diversion. Whereas when you're out halfway across the Atlantic, it's a little bit more of a problem. Yeah. But um, uh, of course, the, I'm confident flying with a piece of kit like that on board that our crew can handle laptop fire. But we, we again make the point, as was in the news uh, mentioned uh, there, that if it happens in the cargo hold, you've the only protection you've got uh, is the um, fire suppression system uh, built into the cargo hold. Uh, and um, there's no real way to monitor what's going on down there. And even once you fire the, use the fire suppression system, um, that in itself will continue to alarm the smoke <clears throat> because the fire suppression gas itself will, um, will keep the uh, smoke system activated. Um, so you are on, on emergency diversion, and this concept of possibly having to put a pile of laptops that have been uh, removed from passengers, probably stuck in the same container, and put in our cargo hold just fills me with dread. Yeah, yeah I think it's pretty scary. Yes, yes, it is. Um, well, we haven't got that way yet because uh, you know there's no countries that have banned a laptops. Uh, in the camping completely but you know we keep getting those warnings and it does worry me yeah I, it worries a lot of people and uh, something you know hopefully we're going to have some kind of a solution that's going to be safe and convenient for people who want to use their laptops on board so yeah it's a sticky wicket isn't it my my <laughs> kick has a solution Yes, what's the solution uh, that might be? No need to worry about that on the Mad Dog. If a battery needs to be put out in the cargo hold, just pour a cup of water through the holes in the floor. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Miami Hick. Uh, oh, Miami Hick. Not quite this. Or we could just uh, fit the cargo bay with Bombay doors. And uh, when we get a warning, we could just open the bombos and drop everyone's bag into the ocean. How would that be? There's an idea. I think the environmental protection people would have a problem with that. Well, we yeah. might burn a whale. <laughs> yeah, it might burn a whale. It has some more floating debris or something. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Moving on. Suitcase might end up in the ocean. That wouldn't be right. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. We have uh, this incident that occurred on the 27th of May. Uh, we've talked about this airport before. It's like one of the world's most demanding airports. It's uh, is it Lukla or Lukla in Nepal? Uh, it's one of the um, airports. It's like one of the highest elevations in the world. Um, a very, uh, if you remember seeing some videos or pictures of it, it's a it's an upsloping runway, not very long, and uh, at the uh, at the bottom end of it, it's a it's a sheer cliff. And uh, the weather patterns around this airport are challenging, to say the least. And uh, this was a uh, freight flight, a small, uh, let's see, an L-410. I'm not sure uh, what airplane, a LET, L-E-T, I've never heard of that, uh, 410. Looked like a, a high-wing turboprop uh, aircraft uh, was uh, performing a cargo flight with three crew members. They were on final approach to uh, Lukla's runny, runway six at about uh, 14.04 local time when the aircraft contacted a tree short of the runway and subsequently contacted ground about three meters below the runway level. 
The aircraft slid down the slope before coming to a rest about 200 meters below the runway level. The captain and the first officer died as a result of the accident, and another crew member received injuries. Uh, now, uh, if we uh, if you go to the link in the show notes on Aviation Herald, they do have some security uh, video from the airport or surveillance uh, video. And it shows uh, the airplane uh, basically coming out of the fog slash clouds about uh, six seconds before impact. And it appears to me that it um, the, they're not quite oriented with the runway at the point they uh, exited the clouds and in an effort, I think, uh, at the last moment to try to align the aircraft with the runway. Um, it looks like they just went into a stall. The airplane really pitched up pretty rapidly and then just disappears from the video. And uh, you can just see a uh, some smoke and stuff coming up and you can tell that they impacted the, uh, the runway, um, right, you know, right below a little bit short. And, uh, the, uh, captain I think died immediately. The first officer was alive when taken to the hospital, but he, uh, sub- subsequently died as well. Um, that looks and, horrendous weather, Jeff, doesn't oh, it? I mean, that's, that's crazy. I'm, I'm, I'm watching the video right now, and, and and that's just crazy trying to fly in that type of weather into this airport. Yeah, and that, I think, is <laughs> it's pretty standard. I think they have like a certain time of day where they're uh, allowed to, to, to come in to land um, because the weather pattern uh, patterns are so horrendous there, um, the conditions there. Um, I'm not sure of all the details if, if that was the, uh, the the window that they needed to uh, come in, you know, as far as avoiding foggy conditions and such. I don't know. But, it, yeah, you, you need to look at the video because it's pretty amazing. Yeah, it kind of looks like um, you, you, he broke in cloud uh, in the dip before the runway was trying to climb up to the runway to get onto it to, to avoid it re-entering the cloud. That just looks <laughs> so wrong. Yeah. I think that uh, that probably is a case where they, well, you know, I don't even know. I don't even, I'm not even sure if there's an instrument approach to that runway. I'm not sure how they even got that close to the airport, but I, I could be wrong. There, there must be an instrument approach because I don't know how they could have been in all that cloud cover. Cause I'm sure that the, there's high terrain surrounding that Valley uh, everywhere you look. So I, I don't know. Um, it's a, sad situation and uh hopefully they'll learn more about exactly what happened here so that others attempting to operate uh, into and out of that airport will uh learn something from it mm. absolutely That's okay terrible. um let's see i think it's time for us to head over to the mailbag <laughs> message all right let's uh start off with some feedback uh from jd uh, captain nick perhaps you would like to uh address this one sure uh jd um i'm just looking for your name i'm but we'll happy to stick with jd oh i'm sorry uh, i don't uh, think we ever knew uh, he never gave no. his uh remember we were trying uh, to find what his name was yeah, I think considering the subject, uh, yeah. that's fine. We won't dig into that. Um, he wanted to uh, thank you all for talking about depression and anxiety. 
and a mel- mental illness in general on the last episode. That would have been our Pittsburgh uh, chat. Uh, this is such an important topic. It's so common these days, not only in terms of uh, increased awareness, but also increased treatment and occurrence. Uh, it meant a lot to uh, hear Captain Nick talk about this as well. And I felt it was very brave to discuss that on the show. Kudos to him. Well, thank you very much, JD. Um, it was really Stephen Ivey who uh, brought the subject up. And uh, uh, it was just that I felt the right moment to bring to uh, the um, to the APG's awareness that I was a fellow sufferer and um, had great sympathy with Stephen and uh, his situation. So it did just open the door to that. And we're all trying to increase awareness in this so that people who, particularly in the aviation industry, where there is a lot of uh, stress and uh, a lot of um, uh, pressure put upon you, um, that uh, people who uh, get a little bit of depression should feel able to talk about it without um, you know, feeling as if uh, they're going to be looked down on by their fellow pilots. Anyway, he goes on to say, I feel there is a general belief that airline pilots are just a cut above in terms of health in general, even though common sense tells you that many ailments, including common mental illness, occurs a lot as well. Well, you are quite right. We're just ordinary people. Uh, We're doing a remarkable job. Uh, I say that without any ego attached to it, but it is. It's It's a fascinating job. We all love doing it, but we are just ordinary people. Unfortunately, the stigma of uh, many of the mental illnesses is like uh, is that those that suffer are crazy and unfit to fly. And that would be uh, a, a common uh, thought. I think that people who hadn't really looked into the subject and, and thought about it a lot might instantly come to. But I agree with uh, you. Um, when you say that, like everything else, there is a spectrum. Uh, just like there is for any problem. It is a common, uh, sorry, is a common mild heart arrhythmia, very common amongst middle-aged people, the same as someone who's uh, had a coronary artery disease. No, of course not. I have suffered, and this is JD speaking, uh, from depression and anxiety and was on medication uh, for it for a period of time. I went off the medication and have coped in other ways. Uh, as I have, J.D., I, I uh, sought uh, cognitive behavioral therapy to get through my problem, and that for me was the perfect cure, being able to talk about it with a professional who understands the illness uh, deeply and was able to explain everything I wanted to know about it, give me uh, a really uh, clever and uh, good set of um, tools to deal with it was the way I got around my problem. So uh, he said, I went off the medication and have coped in other ways, which is brilliant. I've held my class three for over 10 years now. Because I have a history of it, I am, to be honest, fearful of ever having to get treated again, as these conditions tend to reoccur. I'm unclear what the FAA would do if they saw another recurrence, even if I do the right thing by reporting it. Well, I'm sure you understand my attitude towards that and towards any problem you might have with your health. The right thing is always to report it uh, because you try and hide something like that. If it is ever discovered, it'll they'll look upon it as a uh, then are you a trustworthy person and worth being a license holder and you won't get the right treatment. You won't get the right um, 
uh, cure for your problem if you don't admit to it. So my, my feeling is you always come clean with this sort of thing, uh, and that way you're much more likely to keep your license and be successfully treated. Um, so in my case, uh, I am most likely going to be close to that point given some marital difficulties that I'm going through currently. Well, if you're already aware of it, that's half the way that. And I don't think anyone should mistake me for an expert in this just because I was a sufferer. I've had one bout, and in my case, my assessment was that I was very unlikely to ever suffer it again. Because, uh, you know, whatever the circumstances, the course, the first one, they're probably unlikely to occur again in that particular way. And like I say, being forearmed and having successfully worked my way through one, but I'm now much more aware of uh, when I might be um, coming towards another occasion and I can proactively, as you are doing, proactively look to finding a solution and uh, keeping yourself away from those really stressful areas that are likely to drag you under. So um, I, he says, <laughs> always, uh, rather than talk your ear off, I just wanted to pass along the thanks and appreciate the open honesty that people on the show provide. Well, we're here to help, and uh, anything I can do, I, I wish I was an expert on it. Uh, I know Steph uh, will be on the show later. Um, it's not really her area of expertise, but she's certainly a lot more knowledgeable than uh, us pilots are. And if anything that uh, I can do, if you want to contact me uh, in private, then I'm more than happy to chat. But, um, you know, it's it's like I say, it's not an area I have a huge amount of expert experience in, but I'm very willing to uh, share what I can with you, JD. And uh, thanks very much indeed for writing in. Absolutely. And uh, wow. the discussion about depression that he's talking uh, about, uh, as Captain Nick just mentioned, was when we were recording our show in uh, Pittsburgh um, the, the night before, the day before the, uh, the extravaganza live recording <laughs> on that Saturday. But um, yeah, it was uh, turned out to, to be quite an uh, enlightening uh, discussion, I think. It was, it was very nice that uh, you know people really talked openly and honest, honestly about it. And we hope that uh, we can continue to have that kind of atmosphere here at the APG. Oh, absolutely. And the more I think that we feel open to talk about it, the more that uh, other pilots will feel that it's not something that will instantly cause an end to their career. And they will feel happier about seeking uh, professional advice. And that is the trick. That is what you need to do. Because not, it's like a lot of illnesses. Uh, there's no one set cure. And uh, you'll have something tailored for you that will fit you. And uh, that will be the best way to, uh, to treat it. Don't try and wait until it becomes something that is so critical and so bad that um, it becomes uh, you know, the real black dog. Um, you want to treat it uh, as soon as you uh, feel you have a problem. And that way, it's much easier to get over. You know, it's an interesting topic uh, because there is a lot of um, a lot of misunderstanding out there. And, you know, early on, that's actually what my father wanted me to become as a psychologist. So I kind of focused on that in college, um, not completely because I always, you know, wanted to become an airline pilot. But my father was a, a doctor of psychology and his specialty was cognitive learning disabilities. And he was specialist in uh, testing for IQs and testing for learning disabilities. So, 
I have a, a, a little bit of a background. I wouldn't say nearly uh, any expert's background, but you know the important thing that that that's going you know that we're talking about here. I think is that everybody needs to understand that this, we're all human beings, as as mentioned, um, and we all are, are here to talk, learn. Uh, none of us are sub subject matter experts per se on everything, and not everything that we say is always correct. I, I'm from one. <laughs> Can can attest to that, but uh, you know, by coming out and talking about this, I think uh, is is important. Um, I you know personally don't suffer from any of that those issues, but I know other people that have, and uh, it's certainly not something to be afraid of. And I think this is a fantastic, fantastic venue to to allow people to write in and, and ask you know ask questions and, and relay our personal experiences. And I salute you, Captain Nick, for 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 doing that and opening up and and allowing people to hear that you know we are just that human beings and we we really uh, are not um, infallible. No, absolutely right. And any pilot who thinks they are is the wrong kind of pilot, and I don't want him in my flight deck. We are all happy to admit when we uh, have made mistakes, and uh, we're all happy usually to uh, say, okay, I've had a bit of a tough time at home. I haven't slept very well, so, uh, you know, just look after me, keep an eye on me uh, on this trip, make sure I don't make any extra mistakes. Uh, I, You know, as pilots, we're often saying that to each other. Uh, you know, just so that the other pilot is aware if you're not feeling 100%. It doesn't happen very often, of course. Most of us are fully rested and completely well when we come to work. But occasionally you might be just feeling uh, less than 100%, and whether it's uh, physical, mental, or just you've got something on your mind. You know, something that's happened at home or perhaps on the way to work, you might have suffered from a road rage incident that had nothing to do with you but you were a victim and it and it's caused you concern. You might have been held up at security and been given a real hassle by some TSA agent that's really got your goat. So you come to work angry and a good pilot will always tell his uh, oppo that he's flying with if something like that has happened that has doesn't allow him to concentrate 100% on what he's doing. If it's bad enough, of course, a good pilot will turn around and go home again because he'll say, I'm not on the right mind to fly today i can't concentrate on my work so i'm declaring myself sick but uh if it's not that bad and he feels he can still do his job but just wants the other pilot to be aware that he might not be on his metal that day good pilot i think will always let his uh, other pilot know yeah, a lot can be said for any profession i mean take a look at uh, professional football players of course tom is no longer behind me by the oh, way, I, no, did, I, I did move him out of, out of the picture, but you He's know, gone up practice, is he? <laughs> he he had he had to have he had to get folded up. He's getting too dusty. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, it, that's with any profession in any business, you know, professional sports players. I mean, they they go they go to to a game with full intent of, of of doing the right thing and and you know being fully prepared with the game plan and having their mind in the game. But even the best of the best. Doesn't matter how how your intentions are. Uh, there are always going to be some times that you're not at 100, percent and you know that's that's very important you, that you talked about, Nick. Is you always need to communicate with your, your fellow partner in, in the flight deck to make sure you you know. And if it's if it's that bad, then maybe you shouldn't be in the air. Um, but sometimes you can't self evaluate yourself that well. And sometimes if you talk to the other guy, you may say, hey, listen, it doesn't sound very good. I would suggest you don't fly. 
you know, yeah. Yeah, you know, that's that's what the team concept is in the cockpit, and, and we are exactly that—a team. We and and uh, I, I find that most pilots uh, are open and receptive to helping each other out, and that you know one of the things we always talk about is what happens in the cockpit. We try to m- happen in the cockpit. We try to help to remain in the cockpit, uh, you know, because we communicate with each other first. You know, don't go talk to Al- pro standards or somebody else outside the cockpit talk amongst each other and usually you can resolve uh, any help or any issues between the two of you and or help each other between the two of you. What do you reckon, Jeff? I think I agree or I know that I agree with everything you guys have said. So very well done discussion. And uh, thank you, JD, for, uh, for thanking us. And as always, it's our pleasure. This is Miami Hick. Man, I don't know what's going on these days. It's getting crazy out here at these airports. I took me a trip to see my grandma a couple of days ago and uh, thought they were about to announce boarding for the plane. Boy, was I wrong. It is, I'm telling you, it is something crazy out there. So if you're going to fly anywhere, make sure to watch your back. Uh, I had my phone on me, so I was able to record uh, the what I thought was the boarding of the plane. So uh, enjoy. Miami Hick, over and out. In this corner, weighing in at 180 pounds, with over 20,000 flight hours under his world champion belt, wearing black pants and four gold stripes, it's Captain Jeff. And in this corner, weighing in at 82 pounds, wearing her brand new pink leggings, and accompanied by her mommy, daddy, and nana, it's seven-year-old first-time flyer, Missy. And then... Use your imagination. It was quite a match. <laughs> what was her name? Missy? Yeah. I took Missy. care of that little, that that little awesome. thing. What about <laughs> mom and dad? Didn't they lay in? <laughs> it was kind of a, yeah, it was kind of a mess, but uh, we took care of it. And uh, we, uh, we uh, confiscated all the uh, uh, cell phone cameras and everything else. So there was no evidence of it. <laughs> so thank you. Uh, relating to one of the, uh, the, Passengers being thrown off uh, earlier. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking it has something to do with uh, kind of a just in general passenger misbehavior and also uh, perhaps uh, allusions to the was it United Airlines where the uh, the two young girls were non revving in uh, in yeah. uh, what, what, what do you call them yoga pants or something <laughs> leggings. So uh, yes, yeah, not wearing their business attire. And I do apologize for not playing that sooner. Um, Miami Hick had uh, contacted me quite some time ago. Uh, let me look at this email to see uh, when this all occurred. Yeah, about mid mid last month. And uh, he, he reminded me today that he said, whatever happened to that? I went, oh, I forgot about it. Because, <laughs> see, it, it's set up. He sent it to an address that doesn't automatically go into the feedback folder of uh, Evernote. So uh, a lot of times uh, things get, uh, you know, uh, lost between the uh, uh, the cracks of the. I'm APG. curious, Jeff, in uh, Acme, do they actually say what is an acceptable dress or do they do like our uh, outfit used to do, which is just say a suitable business attire? I think that they do say that a suitable business attire, but they all you know, I don't even think they say suitable business attire for regular non-revenue passenger travel, but they do have some um, doc, well, not documents like brochures that uh, you can uh, links to uh, brochures that you can send people who have never 
traveled, uh, non-revenue traveled and basically say, you know, lay out uh, some specifics actually like, you know, don't, if you wear jeans, it's okay to wear jeans, but not, not jeans that have holes in them, you know, that, that kind of thing. Uh, yeah. Right, Dana? Yeah. You have to, it, there is guidance at Acme, actually, and uh, it's no longer, it used to be uh, going way back, Jeff. You, you can probably remember this. You had to wear a business suit. You couldn't get on the aircraft oh, yeah. unless you had a suit and tie on. Now, yep. uh, then they uh, kind of let loose on that and said, okay, business casual. So, you know, Dockers in a polo shirt and had to look professional. Now it, they kind of, they kind of laid out and said, just like what Jeff said, pretty much, you have to look presentable. Can't have. To. Was that in, Nick? Yep, that was almost in anyway. Oh, almost. That doesn't shot. count. <laughs> now they know. Now you know why the Brits don't play basketball. Uh, anyways, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, and, and the, the, they're they're a lot lo- looser now than they were in the past, as far as with what you can get away with wearing. And I don't necessarily agree with that. I think you're representing the company. I think you should always at least be in business casual. That's how I always show up at the airport. I never wear anything else other than, you know, a nice pair of uh, dress slacks, shoes, and at least a, 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 a collared polo shirt. So um, Yeah, because I always wonder what business tarot meant. I mean, if you were uh, a guy whose job was to sell coconuts on a Caribbean beach. Would, that's that your would, business. Yeah, a pair of shorts and flip-flops. <laughs> that would be your business attire. <laughs> Yogi writes in. Hi there. Enjoying your weekly show a lot. Most of them I listen to during my frequent flying as I have about 200 flights a year. Wow, that's a lot of flying. Uh, Is there any way to recognize that the pilot is using the Autoland versus the good old hand flying? I sometimes notice about three to five minutes before landing that the plane is suddenly moving very slightly left or right a couple of times and then it is quite stable again. The wheels are coming out only later, so for sure it's not them. Is that the pilot getting a feeling or am I overthinking this? Thanks again. <laughs> and thank I you like for- those feelings. This feeling yeah. good. This feeling good. I get good feelings. So I think that he is on to something here. I think that uh, when we make the transition from uh, the aircraft on the auto flight system to manual flying, um, it does take a little bit of a transition sometimes to kind of get used to the uh, the feel of the airplane and and uh, adjust for winds and uh, you know wind gusts and that kind of thing and um, I don't know what do you guys think I think it's completely natural when you take the autopilot out just to tweak the controls to make sure you're actually doing something and you're connected right um, so yeah I think that would be quite normal but all he needs to do is sit near the uh, front of uh, a 340 and you'll hear the um, the a cavalry charge go off, uh, which you someone can probably find a sound effect for that. <laughs> but uh, it sounds a bit like someone rattling your doorbell very fast. Um, and uh, that goes off two or three times, I think. And that, that's the indication that the pilot has uh, taken control. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah I, I, would, I would agree with the, all of that, except for uh, with our technology, how new it is, you know, the Mad Dog. Um, there are times when we are on final approach that the uh, autopilot, George, 
is searching for that localizer and, and is rocking back and forth and sometimes takes a little bit once it's joining the localizer to actually stabilize itself. Uh, mm -hmm. So it, it really could be, in, depending on the aircraft, uh, could be uh, the autopilot coming off or it could be that the airplane's settling in on the on the you know because we almost exclusively fly uh, an ILS approach or use the te technology uh, the radio frequency to get the aircraft stabilized on the final approach so it, it could be either or depending on the aircraft and right. where you are on the, on the final and when we're using the ILS uh, instrument landing system uh, technology for an approach, even if it's a beautiful day and, and you know visual approaches are in effect, you're still using this as as backup guidance for you know course and glide slope, and uh, so the the air traffic controllers aren't you know being too careful about you know airplanes crossing runways and that kind of thing. Where it, if you were doing a low visibility approach, then there would be all kinds of protections in place to keep that signal as pristine as possible. But when the weather is nice and we're still hooked up to the uh, auto flight system and it's trying to fly the localizer, that localizer um, signal will actually uh, bend when airplanes cross runways and, you know, get, uh, they interfere with the signal enough for the, uh, uh, for the signal that we're receiving in our airplane to bend a little bit. And so of course your airplane will, at least our airplane will do, you know, kind of just, blindly follow it and bank a little bit this way bank a little bit that way and uh that's usually when most of us go okay that's enough <laughs> turn off the uh, auto flight system manually fly it and just ignore the uh, variances of the of the signal and the displacement of the um course deviation indicator etc because we're looking the at other the other thing I'd, I'd say yogi is that uh i certainly in my outfit i think every single pilot's got his own favorite place when he takes out the autopilot it doesn't always happen at the same spot so uh, you know some guys like to take it out uh, you know 10 miles 15 miles away some people more than that uh, other guys like to leave it in almost to the decision height uh, right. which is only a couple of hundred feet above the ground and there's a complete variety so something that happens at a particular point on the approach every time that's probably not the autopilot coming out there's probably something else happening yeah that is for sure. Yeah. Uh, there are people like myself who like, you know, turning off all the automation quite a ways out and just kind of getting a feel for the jet and, you know, practicing uh, the uh, uh, instrument flying skills and that kind of thing. Anyway, um, unfortunately, uh, most of the people, especially the newer people that I'm flying with uh, recently, either think that it's a policy or they just don't want to hand fly the airplane until like just a couple hundred feet above the ground and then everything comes off. But that's a perfectly acceptable, you know, way to uh, operate the airplane. It's just that uh, that's not the way I do it. We don't think it's particularly good though, do we, Jeff? We no, prefer we people don't. to take it out a bit beforehand and get a proper feel for it. <laughs> yes. You've, you've only got like 10 seconds from uh, 200 feet to reach in the runway. It doesn't give you much of a chance to assess the wind and feel what the bugs right. are doing. So I prefer guys to take it out way before that. Yeah, That's I'm, what I'm, she I'm said. with you, both of you guys. I I quite quite regularly fly the airplane up to uh, eighteen thousand feet and then coming back down. It's not uncommon for me to click the autopilot coming off, coming down through uh, ten thousand feet on mm -hmm. the approach, depending on where I'm at. Uh, I I try to hand fly the airplane as much as possible. And listen, 
what do we what do we pay to do? We're paid to not only make good good decisions and analyze everything, but also we're paid to uh, fly aircraft. And if we're not proficient at doing that, uh, you know, if the automation isn't there sometime, then we're not going to be nearly as proficient. So uh, that's all part of the proficiency process. And yeah, um, got to be proficient in all modes. Yes. All right. Well, thank you for the question, Yogi. Um, and oh, by the way, Autoland all the way down to touchdown. I mean, an actual Autoland happens very rarely. And it's one of those things that either the the visibility is so low that we are required to perform an Autoland or the airplane needs an Autoland logged. I think it's every, what, 90 days they have to get a successful auto land completed on the jet uh, so that it's still good still current and uh, we pilots also need to uh, perform either a practice uh, auto land approach or a real you know low visibility auto land approach every i think 90 days as well six Is six it? months every six months okay thank you all right um mark writes uh my name is mark I've been listening to APG since somewhere around 60, episode 60, but I've never thought of sending in feedback until now. I have a, I've had a lifelong interest in aviation, and about two years ago, I left a career in teaching to pursue one in the airlines. I went the entry-level route and got a job as a crew scheduler with Acme Jr. just down the street from Acme here in Atlanta. After two years in scheduling, I'm very excited about returning to the classroom in the fall. Anyway, one of the biggest challenges of scheduling at Acme Jr. is the consistency in which our crews go over their flight duty period. This, combined with the seeming reluctance of the crews to take any kind of an extension, can make a scheduler's job very challenging. A rumor around our office is that Acme, mainline, doesn't ask their pilots if they're able to take a two-hour extension. Instead, Acme pilots have to call fatigued if they're unable or unwilling to extend. I find this kind of hard to believe, but I figured I'd go to the source. Is this true? Do Acme typically ever or even run up against their flight duty period limit? Or do you think pushing the limits like this is more common at a regional? Thank you so much for your time you put into this podcast. Truly look forward to listening each week. All the best, Mark. So uh, Dana and I, before we started recording the show, we're talking about uh, his recent trip and the fact that... uh, we were talking flight duty periods and such and extensions. And so I thought, uh, Dana, you might be the best person to uh, answer this question for Mark. Absolutely, Mark. First off, uh, thank you for being a great teacher and teaching the young kids, uh, the future leaders of our country. Um, you have been exposed to one of the hardest parts of our business initially, and that's being a crew scheduler. It's a thankless job and a very difficult job at, at best. Uh, first thing I want to start off with, with answering your question, um, I have to I have to go to rule making 117, the FAR 117 that they came out with. Um, and th- this is kind of coming to the defense of regional pilots and also uh, us uh, mainline pilots. And that is, uh, I, I fly with a lot of guys that, say they've never flown so tired in their entire career. Um, it is, uh, these rules actually are, are much, 
much harder to fly under uh, and, and be rested. You know, even though they extended it to 10 hours, it, you, you don't think of uh, a duty day um, affecting you. But what it is is a, it's a com- combination of all the, the duty periods lined up. It used to be that you could only fly uh, 30 hours in seven days. Now you can fly, well, pretty much almost unlimited as long as your duty time isn't in excess of that. And at the regional levels, this is really hard because, uh, you know, when I was flying at the regionals, you know, the way that the regional schedule, it's a lot more flying in a duty period. So you're flying three, four, five, six legs a day. That's a lot of flying, especially when you start dealing with, with weather. So if you do a 14-hour day and you fly six legs, that's far more fatiguing than you'll ever ever see it to be if you're flying from Atlanta to San Francisco in overnighting. Uh, so even at ACME, we do run into this problem occasionally, but we don't nearly schedule uh, at ACME like the regionals do in pushing the pilots to the maximum. Now, as far as the extension goes, uh, at ACME, they assume that you're going to go 30 minutes past. All right. The, the, so that's the assumption. Otherwise, you have to have to do a fatigue report. And now, even up to the two hours, they want you the extension. They want you, but they don't really try to push you. They assume you're going to take it, but they also uh, will will you know, if you decide not to take it, you fill out the fatigue report, you lay out the reasons, well, you know, I did four legs today or three legs today or last night, like in Memphis. I mean, I good thing we actually got some extra rest because quite honestly, uh, I had to call down to the front desk and have them come up with security twice to the room next to me because they're making so much noise. Then her alarm clock went off at four o'clock in the morning about two hours before I was supposed to get up. So, you know, I was borderline myself. If we'd had to go to the fourteen and a fourteen hour plus duty day, I would not have been able to do it. it just, I was just going to be physically and mentally too fatigued to do it. So, um, I think at Acme uh, on the more regionalized uh, jets, like the, the the Mad Dog or the Seven One Seven, and even to some extent, probably the Airbus, although they don't tend to do as many legs as the. Uh, 717 or the mad dog does but you know unless you have a major weather event at acme generally speaking you don't get very close to the flight duty period period limit uh very often um so yeah we do have a way but you know the what the regionals have a tendency of doing is is they assume that you automatically they're going to schedule the the pilots right up to the max flight duty day and they assume that the, the pilots are going to uh, go ahead and extend. And I'll, and I'll be quite frank with you, uh, more than likely the reason why they're not extending is because they're just flat out, worn out, and tired in most cases. Yeah, occasionally you'll you'll fly with a guy that, you know, says, I'm not going to extend um, because, you know, according to my contract, I don't have to. Um, but that is usually not the case. I mean, those, those folks are... Uh, few and far between most of us are are mission oriented we want to uh, accomplish the flying that we need to uh, accomplish and you are correct mark that the assumption as dana just mentioned the assumption um, at acme is that we will uh, automatically uh, allow that two-hour extension but as also dana 
mentions, uh, it doesn't happen very often. It has to be some kind of an irregular operation for that to uh, come into play. And um, if, as also Dana just said, you really cannot um, extend because of fatigue, exhaustion, or whatever, then, you know, you do whatever you need to do to fill out the paperwork for, uh, you know, calling in fatigued. Yeah, I mean, if 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 you're tired, you're tired, and that's yeah, that and that's kind of a double-edged sword, I think, um, because if you get to that point that your decision-making process is is flawed because you're so tired and fatigued, I mean, it's a difference. There really is a difference. There are, there are times that I'm tired. We all get tired, but when the, there's a clear marker and a difference when you're fatigued versus being tired. When you're fatigued, you're unable to really make solid decisions. You you just your whole thought process is way off whack. You can't do simple simple uh, task. Your you know your normal checklist that you know we do you know on, on our airplane we you know, on, on a trip we do 12, 14 times on a trip. You know, just do, being able to do simple tasks like that become laborious. Um, so even to just make that fatigue call to say, hey, listen, I'm fatigued. Sometimes your thought process isn't even there to, to make that call and when you should be. And uh, mm-hmm. so if, if that for me personally, if I'm at that point and I'm looking around and saying, wow, I, I mean, I, I can't I can't function on, on a very basic level. I, I put a stop right there, and I've only ever had to do that once. And there's a couple times I should have, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But again, like Jeff just mentioned, we tend to be mission-oriented. Um, so it's an individual basis, and it's really a scheduling basis. I really think that at ACME, we, we schedule a little more cautiously and don't push our pilots, even though you know, if you talk to the ACME pilots, a lot of us will say we're flying uh, far more tired than we have been we're not flying fatigued but we're flying tired because you know i just came off a trip you know it's short layovers with with long yeah. duty days so it, it but not nearly as long as at a regional where they'll push you right up to the maximum give you the minimum rest every night on a four or five six you know four or five day trip so right. by the time by the time people are at the at the end of the trip they're i'm done i mean i am not extending no i'm exhausted and then you give them you know 30 hours off because that's what the FARs say. And then they come back and they do the exact same. So it's cumulative. So it keeps on. So that's, it's far more cumulative at the regional level than I think at the, at the major level. So I think that's about all I have to say on it. Out of interest, uh, EASA, uh, the rules under which I fly, um, whilst they allow us to fly more hours than we used to under the civil aviation rules, uh, now the penalties, uh, if you deliberately fly when you're fatigued, are considerably higher, including a prosecution and a prison uh, sentence. So we and the company take flying, um, uh, extending your flying duty period beyond the maximum allowed, in other words, using captain's discretion incredibly uh, carefully and it's quite rare now in fact very rare so just to clarify you mean uh, prosecution and uh, penalties in a court of law. for for the individual pilot 
Yep, if the pilot deliberately flies when he believes wow. he was fatigued. I mean, say you had a, uh, you decided to extend your duty to get home, and you had an incident on landing, and they proved it was partly because of fatigue. They could very well say, well, that was uh, an incorrect decision, and uh, they could, they can, in theory, take you to court. Wow. Well, but yeah, I, I have a problem with that. I have a big problem with that. How do you know when you leave or, or, or decide to take a flight that X amount of hours later that you're going to be fatigued? You well, we're talking about extending your uh, flight time. Can't so, know that. It, it, like, what do you mean? Uh, I, I can't. I can't know if I'm going to be fatigued, even if I extend. Like, yeah, for example, yesterday. So I, I was I was essentially resting most of the day. Right. I got up at six o'clock in the morning for work, went to the airport. They sent me back to the hotel, did not put me in rest, but they had planned on extending me to you know, contractually. It wouldn't have worked. But if I went up to 14 hours, right, and, and on my duty day and I hadn't done anything all day long, how could I say that when I showed up at the airport to fly that flight from Memphis back to Atlanta, when I am in the airport in Memphis, I'm ready to go. Everything's fine. And I show up in Atlanta, something happens. And, you know, at, when I get to Atlanta, I'm fatigued, which at, when I left Memphis, I didn't know what was going to happen. Um, I, I'm not quite sure we're, we're not talking different scenarios here, but let's just assume you've been sitting on the ground consuming you or at the airport, consuming your duty hours and uh, you're reaching the end. And they say there's an hour and a half flight now. Uh, you need to extend your duty day by two hours for us to to do it. Will you go and fly that? And if you say, ah, I'm coming up into my duty day, I'm pretty, pretty feeling pretty tired. Uh, I know uh, that's fine. If they if you go, oh, okay, uh, I'll do that. I'm feeling pretty tired, but I want to get home because that's my base, Atlanta. And you go ahead and flying fly it, knowing you are fatigued, but it's now legal because you've extended voluntarily extended your duty day to the maximum and you then have an incident people would then say you should have known you were tired you were tired you told your first officer you were tired you told your ground crew you were tired and you went ahead and flew it anyway i think that's the scenario so that would be like bordering on negligence or or perhaps yeah. not even bordering on it yeah no but but, but that, that's that's the assumption here in the states it's just like uh, mark asked well, the question well, i mean that's all I'm saying, Dana, all I'm saying is that you could be prosecuted for it in the UK. Right. Well, there might be a lot of prosecutions here in the States then if that was the case, because I think especially at the regional level, you find guys that will push it. And then they get to the, they, they don't realize and recognize when they're getting fatigued. Yeah. Well, I, I think that's if we had yeah. the, uh, the prospect or the threat of, legal prosecution perhaps people would you know take a better look at it here in the u.s yeah i don't know i i think you know i think we just need to to not extend period i mean i think i think that the 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 extension should be only used in rare cases which are uh uncontrollable like weather or mechanical problem or something something that's outside the airline's control and, and that's kind of what my point to Mark was, is that we at ACME, we very rarely schedule that way to where it puts us in jeopardy of having to extend on any tip. I mean, I can't 
um, I can almost not remember the last time I truly extended the ACME. It's mm-hmm. very rare, maybe yeah, once a year at most. Yeah. Whereas at the regional level, those guys, they're, they're back. It's every week. To, it's, it's every yeah. week. And that's why the guys in crew scheduling at ACME Jr. are banging their heads against the wall because they, they don't, they, they, they don't want to do it because, well, it's assumed they're going to do it, and they're they're just fatigued and tired. I mean, and, and let me even step back further, even further. I used to do, be a duty pilot for ACME. I worked in the operations control center, and I dealt directly with the fatigue calls, and they were very far and few between. And usually, usually, if it was you know just talking to the captain or you know the crew and seeing how they feel and what their reasoning was, if you're fatigued, you're fatigued, end the conversation. That's it. And I would have to defend that to the crew schedulers and crew trackers. You know, when a pilot calls them fatigue, that's it. We're done. And 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 that's really what the problem is. And that's why Mark, you know, has such a hard time in understanding, you know, in, in dealing with at the regional level versus uh, over here at ACME. And, yeah. you know, if we call them fatigue, yeah, they'll accept it. You just fill out the paperwork, and it's just a matter of deciding whether you get paid or not. And, well, at that point, if I'm tired and fatigued, I don't care about pay. I just want to go, go to the hotel or, or go wherever I need to go to get the rest. Yeah. You mean electing not to fly can affect your pay? Now, that's a bit of a... Yeah. A yes, it can. And really, because guys want to get paid. Yep. Another, that's, another factor that's, that uh, kind of pushes folks to perhaps make a decision that they shouldn't, shouldn't make. And that's that's why when you, when you mention prosecution over in England, and I'm thinking the American side is that, all right, these guys, you know, the, the regional guys, which make, um, you know, captain over there might make a hundred to hundred and twenty, uh, and first officers probably forty to fifty thousand a year, it, in, in order for them to make their, their mortgage payment or whatever else, they're thinking, okay, I have to I have to get this done so I can get my, uh, you know, get my proper pay, otherwise. I'm not going to be able to pay my mortgage this month. You know, uh, that's a, an extreme example, but that is the motivational factor behind people actually extending and working and, and trying to get put put together. But again, at the regional level, they push them just so hard that the, the they, they know that the motivation is the money, and yeah. really, it shouldn't. It really ought not be. And the new Part 117 rules have made it far more. Uh, laborious and, and and I think far more tiring on pilots because it used to be, you know, thirty hours in seven days. Now you can fly. I, I mean, at, even at Acme, I've flown almost forty hours in in four days, five days. It's mm-hmm. not uncommon to do that now. Yeah, I think that uh, Part One Seventeen rule kind of uh, helped uh, matters with the uh, the long haul type of flying, but it uh, ended up actually in my anecdotal experience, uh, increasing the amount of flying that I do now. <laughs> so I thought it was supposed to give me more rest, uh, and now I, I have less. Uh, it's well, kind of weird. And at the regional level, it had, the 117 has had a little bit of a positive effect, and that is that they would regularly use the eight-hour, nine-hour rule oh. over at the regionals. So they're give, getting that extra hour rest on a regular mm-hmm. basis, but it's still not enough. Be, well, you know, all they had to do with 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 the 121 back when when they decided to make all these changes is make the minimum rest 10 hours that's all they had to do with our old rules then they had then they went to all this science base and let me tell you it's far far worse and that's really 
uh, you know, another segment of, of what Mark's asking. Yeah. Uh, 117 has made uh, it far worse for the pilots, especially the guys to fly five, six, seven legs a day, you know. Well, I don't so know about Captain you. Now, I'm sorry, Jeff. I was going to say, I don't know about you, but I'm getting fatigued just talking about this. Yeah, I agree. Hey, Captain Al hey, raised hey. an interesting point uh, in the chat room. He said, uh, maybe U.S. airlines should have salaried pilots. Now, that would definitely change the whole dynamic. But I agree. But that is not going to happen in okay. our lifetimes. Bad luck, Captain Al. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's move on, shall we? Mississippi Matt writes, Attached is a video of a segment of commercial aviation I believe is underrepresented on the APG show. So we have a complaint here, uh, the complaint department. Uh, you want to get that over there, complaint department? No, wait a minute. We don't have one. Um, oh, no, Steph's not here. <laughs> Steph's not here. Uh, this was filmed just across the river in Arkansas. For anyone that is a, a fan of hands-on flying, no autopilot here. This type of flying requires supreme concentration and accuracy and uh he writes the aircraft is a thrush s2r-t34 powered by a pratt and whitney pt6 and uh i do have the video here except that um uh, i'll tell you what let me see if i can uh share this video with everybody uh -oh, and then, here we go yeah so this will completely tube everything uh when <laughs> I do this. but we're gonna try it anyway what the heck uh I will say the Pratt & Whitney PT-6 is a fantastic engine. Oh, yeah. I have a lot of experience with it. All right. Share. Let's see if this will work. The took the cabin I was born in. And the briary claimed the fields. Now, this is some low-level flying. All right, that's enough. Um, I'll put a link to the rest of this in the show notes. Looks like there's some kind of device out there on the nose of the aircraft and uh, the field of vision uh, directly ahead of the pilot's field of vision. Uh, I can't really tell exactly what this device is doing, but I'm wondering if it I has think something. It's one to of do those it. parking devices that tells you when you're getting close to the bollard ahead of you. <laughs> and it bleeps and the red lights come on have you I'm, got one of those in your car Jeff? yeah don't no, no i don't i'm not in any car i drive uh, but uh I'm, I'm wondering if it's some kind of a very um uh, sensitive uh altimeter device that lets them know how uh far off the ground they are or maybe it has something to do with the actual crop dusting aspect you know the uh, chemicals dispersion i don't know but uh, it's it's pretty i just played the very first part of this thing it's about a six and a half minute uh, video and it's definitely worth looking at because there's some really great footage of the this guy's literally flying over the tops of these crops at like two feet above the the top of the crop and uh, there's another uh, oh, yeah. airplane that joins great in footage. and it's uh yeah it looks like a lot of fun flying fun flying but, but i want to know it Sorry, if if he's chemtrailing, I mean, shouldn't it be a bit higher? I mean, people aren't going to breathe that. <laughs> yeah, well, that's he's that close to the ground. He's in uh, uh, pesticide uh, mode, not chemtrail mode. Oh, okay, fair enough. They, they and probably... I was going to say it's a, it's actually a very dangerous job. Oh yeah, I bet it is. Oh god, very yeah. dangerous. They lose a lot. I mean, in the season, they've got to they they do so much. It's very seasonal, isn't it, uh, Dana? You've got to do it the right time of the year to kill the bugs, yes. which means you're working from sun up to sun down, 
doing all your flying that close to the ground and then straight back, refuel and reload the hopper and do it again. And geez, you, I, I can't imagine trying to keep that level of concentration for that long period. Yeah, yeah it's, 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 it's insane. It is insane. Um, general aviation guys, it just, <laughs> I know they've done crop testing. Uh, a guy that I used to uh, work for, Airboss, uh, he he do, he owned a, a crop testing uh, aircraft, a co- several of them actually, and told me all about it. And it's just it's it's exactly what you said, Nick. Sunrise, sundown, uh, in very limited amount of time, and and you know get all types of hazards. You get power lines, you've got anything you'd be sticking up out of the ground, and you're that close to the ground. If you have an engine failure, although you know think of it, it's you, you're pretty close to the ground, which is usually level ground. You still have very little time to make any, any decisions to to what to avoid and how to avoid it, so it, it's a very da- dangerous and very tedious job. And by the way, yeah, um, I mean it's it's not like you can get out to every field you're going to cover and survey them all and notice all the power lines and all the obstructions. It, geez, it must be tough. There's a point in this video where uh, he is actually. Um, during one of the runs going underneath some uh, high tension, you know, power lines. Oh yeah. Uh, They're not high either. Are they? They're like about 15 feet above the ground. I'm going, whoa. (laughs) Yeah. And I think it's like a curved part of the, uh, uh, of the field as well. So it's uh, pretty interesting. Uh, So check out. Kind of like like flying underneath the London bridge, you know? Yeah. Uh, You're very true. Actually that look, that's pretty big in comparison. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so check it out. And and Mississippi, Matt, uh, you're right. Uh, This uh, segment of commercial aviation is absolutely underrepresented on the APG show. If uh, I'm, I don't know if Mississippi, Matt, are you involved in agricultural aviation? If you are, uh, make sure you invite all of your friends to uh, watch and listen to the APG show. And uh, perhaps, uh, Send him feedback, and uh, we'll we'll hear more about this uh, awesome aspect of aviation. Yeah, but be quick because I gather the life expectancy isn't huge. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and when are they going to have time? In, in true, in truth, I mean, not only is it, do we not talk about it a whole lot, but it is almost one of the most unforgotten, forgotten uh, uh, commercially, you know, flying jobs, and in, in probably that I know of. Yeah. Other than that, to, being a tow pilot, I mean. Nobody ever talks about them either and, and uh, parachute jump pilots. Yeah. We'll talk about so. them on future shows, I'm sure. You just rattle their cages. Okay. <laughs> They're going to send them feedback. That, that would be cool. If you're out there listening to the show and you're uh, a tow banner, what do you call those? Banner tow uh, air, aircraft? And uh, what was yep. the other one you mentioned, Dana? Um, parachute jump. Parachute. parachute uh, yeah. Parachute. First, you know. Just, uh, I used uh, to do that. Yeah. Awesome. It was awesome. It was one of the best jobs. I, I really enjoyed that job. Hey, Chris writes in. Uh, he says, hey there, relatively new listener. Enjoy the show. I'm an air traffic controller in Moncton. Uh, let's see. Charlie, Zulu, Quebec, Mike, Alpha, no, it was. Charlie, Charlie. So no doubt I've unwittingly spoken to Captain Nick a few times. Oh, I'm sure you were very witty. <laughs> <laughs> If he had known it was you, he probably wouldn't have talked. No, I probably had, uh, very have a nice true. Most CPD will see nowadays, but uh, we always uh, usually say hello if it's quiet. We ask him how effing cold it is down there. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that's that's uh, kind of the the cold parts of uh, well, all the parts of Canada are cold, but that's got to be the super cold part. 
Um, Absolutely. He says he's also a commercial pilot rated, uh, but uh, never did much besides fly skydivers. Hey, there we go. We're just talking about that. And he just skydiver sky uh, dive in those temperatures. I mean, they don't. They hit the ground like a block of ice. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure if they do that up there, but maybe they do. Anyway, he says I just fly recreationally now. Thanks for the entertaining information. Keep it up, Chris. So make sure you say hi to Chris next time you're yeah, in Yeah, well, Chris, next time you hear a, a voice that sounds a bit like mine, just whisper APG over the uh, <laughs> over the frequency, and I'll I'll say hello. Awesome. Our uh, dispatcher friend, Greg Dubin, uh, sent this uh, very amusing uh, ATIS broadcast. And, of course, normally, um, well, I, I say normally, not not normally. It used to be that we'd normally listen to this uh, computer kind of, uh, well, actually, before computers uh, were reading this stuff, uh, humans were reading the uh, automatic terminal information service broadcast. And then uh, they switched over to a computer voice reader that would read the text. And now most of us get our ATIS information from our ACARS device and print it out. Anyway, this one, um, he circled um, something in the, in the text here, the body of the ATIS broadcast. And let's see, this was a, a Chicago O'Hare departure ATIS information, India. And uh, let's see, I'm not going to start from the very beginning. Uh, runway 14 right, 32 left closed. Pilots use caution for bird activity in the vicinity of the airport. Use caution for men and equipment at numerous sites on the field. That is what she said. Traffic landing runway 9 right. Be aware of aircraft departing runway 32 left. And then it goes on. <laughs> so somebody uh, with a really good sense of humor and perhaps... I love it. Perhaps an APG listener, who knows? Uh, in the uh, when they were typing out this broadcast, uh, this ATIS information, um, after using use caution for men and equipment at numerous sites on the field, they that popped into their head. That's what she said. That's what she said. So I thought that was pretty funny, and so did Greg. Thank you for sending that in. That reminds me so much of my early days in the Air Force. We used to actually have a teleprinter machine. <laughs> and the Met guys used to type out uh, the, the TAFs and the actuals. And this machine would go off and be rattling in the corner. It's got one of those old-fashioned balls that used to spin around with all the letters on it. And it literally goes, as this thing spat out. And obviously there's a bloke the other end typing and it's going off to all the RAF stations and uh, he mistyped a whole sentence so he obviously moved his hands across the keys a bit and they all came out as as gobbledygook and uh, and they went dot 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 steady the buffs now for those of you who don't know that's <laughs> quite a famous English phrase steady the buffs it was used um, just before the I think the charge of the light brigade when um, Washington was trying to I'm probably getting this completely wrong was trying to uh, calm down one of his cavalry uh, units who was uh, getting too keen to enter the fray, and they sent the message, steady the buffs, the buffs being one of the uh, cavalry units. So he used this in his thing. Obviously, oh, interesting. Going and every now and again, used to get some joker that would be putting hail, lightning in the vicinity, plagues of frogs, <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, just to see if uh, actually somebody's reading this stuff. Apparently, I yeah. Exactly. Uh, we'll put. Uh, I'll put a uh, the actual photo that uh, Greg sent. We'll put that in the show notes if you want to check it out yourself. It's pretty funny. 
we have some audio feedback, uh, finally. And uh, this is from someone we all know and love uh, in the APG community. His name, Glenn. Let's take a listen. Hello, my fellow APG syndrome sufferers. It's Glenn here from New Zealand with some feedback. It's been a while since I've done the feedback, but I just happened to notice in the news today about the uh, crash report on the TU-154. They have the Russian military band aboard um, crashed into the Black Sea on 25th of December. And it's interesting to see the, uh, the crash report has come out with the suffered from a stomachavric illusion. Gravic illusion? Anyway. Uh, yeah, it was obviously an imbalance. The uh, old imbalance, he ignored his instruments and uh, thought the aircraft was um, uh, s- climbing steeply when it was actually a level flight and he pushed and crashed into the sea at something like um, 540 kilometres an hour or 336 miles per hour for you um, people. Anyway, um, I was wondering if you guys have ever had that... Uh, illusion happened to you you the pilots among us ever had the illusion where you're going up or down when naturally the aircraft is in either level flight or going completely the other direction uh yeah really enjoyed listening to um you guys about um, wings over pittsburgh and uh of course looking forward to uh meeting some of you in atlanta this year and of course oshkosh um Blue skies, uh, tailwinds, Glenn out. Thank you, Glenn. And I have a feeling that Captain Nick has experienced some sensory illusions in his aviation experience. Yeah, nothing in the civil world, really, but uh, I guess a few in uh, in the fighter world because yes. um, the aircraft has you know so much more performance. Um, and generally speaking, we were all very aware of it, bearing in mind that an awful lot of our flying was done via day VFR, and you're not going to get one of these illusions if your eyes can see which way around the world is because your eyes are so dominant with regards to orientation that uh, any strange um, effects you're getting from your inner area will be immediately overridden. Having said that, uh, one of the uh, failings of that dominance is that if you're facing, for example, a sloping cloud bank, uh, your eyes will see that as uh, the level horizon, and you'll be trying to fly your aircraft to that sloping cloud bank thinking it's level and wondering why the hell you keep turning. Um, and then when you actually straighten the aircraft up on the instruments, your eyes will continually be saying, no, 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 you're in a, in a turn. But the instruments are, are conflicting. So that's one area where your eyes can uh, lead you astray. Another might be um, flying with a, a, a white a cloud meeting a snowy background where you have no defined horizon or a, what we used to call over the ocean a fishbowl day where um, there, there is no sharp horizon. The sea and the clouds just kind of merge. And then uh, you, you might see something uh, that is close to you that resembles a horizon. Uh, and, of course, because it's close to you, it'll be low, and you'll immediately bump the airplane thinking, well, that's the horizon down there. I must blow my nose to bring it up to where it should normally be on my cockpit and you start descending sharply and of course if you're at low level that's that's very dangerous so uh, we're aware of those and to be fair one of the 
main things about countering this is the knowledge of how and when they might occur and pre-warning yourself mentally that this might be a day when you're going to get those kind of effects and be prepared for them. At night, of course, um, you know, stars in the sky, scattered lights on the ground were always a great one when you're maneuvering the airplane hard, even you know, doing the equivalent of aerobatics at night. When you see what you think are stars and it's actually the ground, um, that can really uh, disorientate you. But the main one that we used to have uh, was something called a Coriolis trap. And that would be uh, if you're turning the airplane and you have to swing your head down to look, uh, where you lower your head and turn it to one side to look at, say, uh, an instrument or a control that's in say, the bottom left or the, the rear of the cockpit um, or the opposite side, uh, that would create um, sympathetic movement in all three of your semicircular canals. Um, and induce a feeling of pitch uh, or roll that uh, isn't there. And uh, we were always uh, very aware of when that might occur. So if we needed to, say, set the IFF up uh, in the corner there, we would just move our heads gently. And one of the great things about flying with two guys in the cockpit is that you've always got one guy keeping an eye on the attitude. And if I were to maneuver the airplane unusually, the nav would be the first bloke with self-preservation primarily in his mind, saying, what's going on? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, there were plenty of those occasions when you might get these effects, but it was all during my military time. I've never, uh, none of the civil aircraft I've flown have even come close to being having high enough performance to ever induce those uh, problems. Uh, Dana, any uh, particular illusions that uh, you may have experienced? Um, you know, I would uh, I would say that in the civilian world, granted they're not um, high performance aircraft, but you can still get those same illusions when you're flying a single engine airplane, even being a low performance. Remember, there's no autopilot, so you can get those same similar illusions uh, coming out of a cloud when you're hand flying. I personally have experienced that where I thought I was flying crooked when I'm looking at a cloud and it's crooked. I thought it was straight, but I thought it was flying crooked because the way I was looking at it, but I had to come back down to my instruments and, and look at it. Now, there's a very famous uh, a crash that occurred off of uh, Martha's Vineyard uh, on the way to Nantucket, and that was JFK Jr. that had the optical illusion flying a single-engine airplane. He was out over the ocean, and he was not properly trained, which uh, you know Nick alluded to is if you have proper training, you know what to look for to you know, to counteract what you're feeling. And they figured out that, that he was suffering from, you know, from, from not having a horizon to look at. So he didn't know what he was looking at. It is at his instruments. So ultimately he succumbed to, to his, um, his senses. And that's what ultimately killed three of them on the airplane. So, uh, not necessarily have to be in a high performance airplane. Um, but it depends on the type of aircraft. And I would, uh, I would, um, agree with Nick on on a, a commercial, a transport aircraft. We're, we're so used to flying in a very stable uh, environment. Generally speaking, with the autopilot on, that the uh, the opportunity for such a, an occurrence to happen is is far reduced. Yeah, something with, that we hear over and over and over again, especially when we first start flying um, and get, getting trained in instrument flying, is trust your instruments. Trust your 
instruments. Yeah, and absolutely. 99.9% of the time or greater, <laughs> they are trustworthy. And uh, it's, it's hard sometimes to kind of, you know, uh, not uh, react to some of the sensations and illusions that you experience. And uh, the, the one that uh, it w- is very common, as Nick mentioned, is the, uh, the sloping cloud bank. And uh, that's a linear perspective illusion. Um, another one that I had when I took my first flight in a, an Air Force trainer, Uh, when I was, you know, I had no experience in this airplane at all. And I was with this, uh, uh, this instructor pilot and we were flying uh, in the clouds. And I thought for sure that we must be either upside down or, you know, at least, you know, 60 degrees, 70 degrees of bank. Uh, But of course, as we popped out, we were straight and level. And I was just in awe of the uh, mad flying skills that this guy had not realizing that in just a few weeks later i'd be i'd be flying in those same kind of conditions and uh, understanding you know that this this is something that you you must be aware of and you must trust your instruments with and then after a while your your brain finally uh, catches up with those odd sensations but even for somebody who has flown for years and years and years you know you can still get weird sensations now every now and then um and illusions uh one one that i that sometimes gets me is and it's not necessarily a oh i don't know how to describe it but that what do they call that the twilight zone uh that uh that delineation between darkness and lightness uh, as the as the earth uh, rotates and the sun changes position, et cetera. So you, uh, sometimes when you're flying very early in the morning, as I do, um, this, this line between light and dark, um, it's kind of looks like clouds. And especially if you're flying the time of year where you're looking outside for weather and, you know, you're, you're looking at this thinking, are we about to fly into like a storm system? And I don't know if you've ever had that experience where you, where you see that, that twilight zone, maybe that's what they call it. The twilight zone. <laughs> I don't know. But I mean, uh, the, some of these are really weird. There's, I remember a famous incident in the air force where a Harry, very experienced Harry, Harry pilot was uh, descending over Norway. So imagine he's going through a patch in the cloud to get to low level and he's descending over a snow field. Uh, and uh, he flew straight in the ground and no one could work out quite why until they looked at the crash site and realized that he descended over a new plantation of um, fir trees. And these uh, little, uh, fir trees that had just been planted were like 18 inches tall. Oh. And he'd been, for the previous two weeks, he'd been flying over pine forests. <laughs> and he was just trying to make the pine trees look uh, 30 feet tall. And they were only 18 inches. <laughs> and when he realized when his low altitude ran out, went off, he was too late to, for him to recover. Well, sometimes we joke around and say, you know, when people are in the cockpit visiting, you know, and you, you, you have this big yoke. And you, you know, we always say, you know, you pull back and the trees get smaller. You push forward and the trees get bigger. And yeah, he kept pushing forward, went for the trees <laughs> to get bigger. Poor guy. Oh, sorry, we shouldn't but, be laughing, but you, you know, missed you miss, you miss half the joke. When you pull back, the trees get smaller. 
if you pull back too far, the trees get bigger again. Yes, that's true. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> you run out. And of Micah left. in the uh, in the chat room is saying sometimes I get the illusion that three professional pilots are doing a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that, that's part of the uh, syndrome, I think. <laughs> <laughs> APG syndrome. Hey, well, somebody mentioned it um, earlier on the show. In fact, it was uh, somebody during the uh, interviews that I. Uh, performed or or uh, what conducted at the beginning of the show at our meetup on Monday night uh, mentioned that the best part of the show is the segment that we call Plain Tales. And now it's time for this week's installment. The Old Pilot's Plain Tales, D-Day, Part 2. D-Day required unprecedented cooperation between international armed forces. The Supreme Headquarters Allied Expeditionary Force was an international coalition, and although the Allies were united against Germany, the military leadership responsible for Overlord had to overcome political, cultural and personal tensions. By 1944, there were over two million troops from over 12 countries in Britain, in preparation for the invasion. The Allied force consisted primarily of American, British and Canadian troops, but also included Australian, Belgian, Czech, Dutch, French, Greek, New Zealand, Norwegian, Rhodesian and Polish naval, air or ground support. The Royal Air Force Museum is a treasure trove of memoirs and letters from those who took part. These are a few of the personal recollections of D-Day. Leading aircraftsman Harry Clift was an armourer with the Typhoon Squadron on D-Day. Towards the end of May, he said, we were told that meals would be available to us at any time of day or night. If we were working into the night and after the work was completed we were hungry, then a meal would be available in the dining tent. Items of food were provided that we had not seen since before the war. The standard of meals was greatly improved and butter, cheese and bread were placed on the dining tables. This was to build us up in readiness for the months that we would have to exist on compo rations. On the 5th of June, the squadron was very busy attacking radar stations and strong points in the invasion area. At night, in the dark, we were issued with buckets of black and white paint and brushes. By the light of headband torches, we painted black and white identification bands on the underside of all aircraft so that they would be recognised as friendly when operating over the beachhead the following morning. Pilot Officer Glover actually flew over the beaches on D-Day. In his story, he tells us, In preparation for D-Day landings, we were specially trained for several months to form part of a small combined RAF Fleet Air Arm Wing responsible for the direction of the naval bombardment on Normandy. 
The scene from 10,000 feet over the beachhead at first light on the 6th of June 1944, when the Allied fleet opened up as one, is something I shall not easily forget. We stayed with the naval guns until the battle moved further inland and beyond their 20-mile range, and absorbed an object lesson in the accuracy and effectiveness of this mighty weapon of war put under our control. An American pilot, Lieutenant Nillens, was flying one of the window-laying Lancasters that featured in the last plane tale. Eight crews would fly for four hours, he said. Eight more would then take their place for another four hours. The pilots had to do precision flying. Each plane would fly 35 seconds on course, make a controlled turn, and fly a reverse course for 32 seconds then a slow turn back onto the first course while throwing out some more window. I would be starting the original course slightly ahead of where the previous lot dropped into the water, thus there would be no interruption of blips on the German radar. I had to fly at 200 miles an hour in a series of circles that carried me forwards at only 8 miles an hour. Lieutenant Nillens continued, there were twelve aircrew on board my Arthur Roger Lancaster. Pilot officer Castanola's crew were coming along to share the flying and windowing duties. Harry, my navigator, guided us into position. I began my hours of very intense flying duty. On course, turning, levelling out, on course, turning, minute after minute. All the time, Harry's voice was droning in my earphones. Tighten the turn, you're two seconds slow. On course, on course, begin turn now. Ease up, you're three seconds too fast. This went on for an hour or so. I had to keep within four seconds elapsed time at all times. It was a relief to have Kaz Castanola slip into my seat his navigator took over from Harry. Three others of his crew relieved those of mine who had been dropping window bundles at four-second intervals for an hour. The second wave took over from us. We had had to return to base at an altitude below 1,000 feet. The coordination of the thousands of aircraft that were airborne over the invasion needed a complicated system of control. Betty Morell was in an operations room doing just that. She said, Towards the end of May all leave was cancelled and everyone was confined to camp. Absolutely no one was allowed out of the gates except for the ration lorries and an emergency hospital case and they had to be escorted by security police. All mail was censored and no one could make outside phone calls. The reasons for all this were kept firmly under wraps, but it wasn't difficult to guess what was going to happen. Airborne troops were camped on the far side of the airfield and gliders were stacked in rows. Clearly something extraordinary was being planned. There was to be a big exercise on the night of June the 4th, but due to bad weather it was postponed for 24 hours. 
Well, we'd had big exercises and postponements before, but this time it all seemed very different. The whole station was holding its breath. On June the 5th, I was coming on the afternoon shift, 2 till 10pm. The whole place was buzzing with activity. Phone messages, signals and a lot of coming and going from the squadrons and army units. At last the orders came through from command and we were told what was going on. Our squadron and others in 38 and 46 groups were going to drop gliders and paratroops into Germany-occupied France. Normandy. This was it. The start of the long-awaited invasion of Europe. Tonight's exercise was actually the beginning of Operation Overlord. A massive seaborne fleet was already heading towards the French beaches. June the 6th, 1944, was to be D-Day. Not a soul went off duty that night. The night shift arrived, but we were told to stay on duty. Not that I wanted to go. There was far too much going on. Our planes took off shortly after 2300 hours. The ops room began to fill up. First Group Captain Abrams, the station's CO, and then a lot of other officers from the squadron offices. In fact, anyone who was allowed to be there and not flying came in and out during that night. The air began to fill with cigarette smoke. It was going to be a long night, and the normal rations of food and drink soon ran out with all those extra bodies wanting sustenance. Around midnight, the CO left and reappeared a short time later, bearing a large tray laden with new supplies. He said he'd burgled the officer's mess pantry and would have to own up in the morning. After a long wait, the signals began to come to say that the drop had been successful and the planes were returning to base. We ate a little and drank lots of tea and coffee, smoked lots of cigarettes and waited for the planes to return. They all came back safely that night. There was a long session of debriefing. When the morning shift arrived, we were allowed to join the crews for a huge aircrew breakfast. Everybody hung about until the BBC told the world of the Allied landings. Then we finally collapsed into bed, excited and exhausted. Flying in that invasion force was a glider tug pilot, Warren Officer Donald Wood. Operation Tonga, he said, got underway as Wing Commander Booth took off at 22.49 hours on June the 5th towing a glider. The remaining six of us took off at roughly half-minute intervals. Staff Sergeant Saunders said that he had a jeep with a trailer full of ammunition, a six-pound gun and six men. The cloud base was low and we flew at a thousand feet. We saw no one else at all, all the way there and back. As the visibility was so poor, we descended about 15 minutes from our ETA to 800 feet. And then, at the very moment the nav cried time, we could just discern the vague outline of the coast. Staff Sergeant Saunders called out, Going now, and immediately pulled off. We turned away and landed back at base at 0240 hours after a flight of 3 hours and 50 minutes. 
All the other six returned, and all reported no enemy aircraft at all, and only very light flak. Not one aircraft received any damage. We learned a day or two later that the bridge had been captured with great success. Later in the day, Wood flew resupply missions. Of those, he commented, On the morning of the 6th, we briefed for Operation Mallard. This was to be part of the very big airborne landing throughout the afternoon onto what we named DZ November. Fifteen of us were to tow fifteen horses loaded with personnel from the Royal Ulster Rifles. We were to drop late evening, and as we arrived overhead, we saw the landing ground absolutely crowded with both horse and Hamilcar gliders strewn everywhere. We took off at 18.44 and landed back at 22.34 after a flight of 3 hours 50 minutes again. Again, not a single German aircraft seen. All the way there and back, we had a continuous cover of fighter aircraft overhead. There was again very little light flak, and that only on the very coastline itself. Again, no damage of any nature to the aircraft. Operation Overlord did not bring an end to the war in Europe, but it did begin the process through which victory was eventually achieved. By the end of August 1944, the German army was in full retreat from France, but by September, Allied momentum had slowed. The Germans were able to regroup and launched a failed but determined counteroffensive in the Ardennes in December 1944. This defeat sapped German manpower and resources and allowed the Allies to resume their advance towards Germany. In March 1945, British and American troops crossed the Rhine, eventually linking up with Soviet forces in Germany. The surrender finally came on the 7th of May, 1945. I think James, uh, what is it, James in the chat room was asking what the D of D-Day stands for. Well, it was kind of, uh, it was a common thing in the military at that time to have uh, uh, H hour uh, D day, so you'd say H hour eighteen hundred, and D day the fifth of June, which is kind of a military way of saying that uh, it was uh, a day date rather than uh, an H hour or an S second or whatever. Interesting. Mm. I, so there know, were lots of D days. It's just that everyone now relates fifth of June. Uh, with uh, the D-Day, that was when the invasion started. I'd, I'd always wondered what the D stood for. Oh, I need to turn off the uh, wow thing there. I never knew that either. That's amazing. All right. Well, we had some uh, communication from uh, Dr. Steph. She's still at work, and uh, she's not sure she's going to be able to join us in time uh, before the show ends. So, oh, that's sad. And I mean, it really is. I mean, 
we're, we're not we're not saying that facetiously at all. We, we uh, miss her. Missed. We miss you, Doctor Steph. Absolutely. Um, so let's see. I think we can knock out a few more here, but we're close to the end of the uh, of the broadcast for today. Um, let's see. This was an interesting one sent from uh, Marcus Hendrickson. He said, uh, I sent this before, but I'm not sure it, uh, that it made it. Um, so I do apologize, Marcus. I'm not sure when you sent it before and if uh, it got lost in the shuffle or whatever. But uh, thank you for sending your uh, feedback in again. Uh, he said this video that he sent, uh, he first watched at um, the EAA Museum. This video is a terrific documentary about a son following his father's steps. It's not 100% about aviation, but it has lots of aviation content. It also stirs a lot of emotion about the father-son relationship. And so I thought I could play a little bit of it. Uh, we'll just play some of the sound. How about it's easier that way. In 1935, my father led an expedition up the Amazon into the jungles of Brazil. 60 years later, I decided to follow him. Some people said that what I finally did was eccentric, but I don't think it was eccentric to try to understand your father better and try to really find out what your father wanted for you. It's called Carnuaba, A Son's I Memoir. I probably mispronounced that, but uh, anyway, um, I look forward to watching this. It's about uh, just under an hour long um, video, and um, I might just watch that tonight. Uh, thank you, Mark, for sending the link to this uh, as you describe, wonderful video. I, I look forward to watching it, and I'm sure that our community uh, looks forward to clicking on the link that we're going to have in the show notes for it. Yeah, I saw some of that. It looked uh, very well made and uh, touching piece. He's right. Do you ever get nervous? All the time. Yes, of course. <laughs> Hello, APG crew. Captain Jeff, Captain Nick, soon to be Captain Dana. Congratulations, by the way. And Dr. Thank Steph. You. This is your other main man, Mark, with my first audio feedback. First, let me say how much I love the show, and thanks for all the hard work and dedication to this wonderful podcast. I always look forward to downloading the show and listening to it in my commute back and forth to work. And also, let me say a big thanks to Captain Nick especially for his segment of the Old Pilot's Plane Tales. It's my favorite part of the show, and I always look forward to it. Thanks so much for all the work you put into that. Now to my question. You all fly into some pretty busy airspace and airports. You also fly in some pretty bad weather sometimes. This combination with the thought of a hundred or so, or in Captain Nick's case, flying the A340, over a couple hundred people in the back, counting on you to get them to their destination safely. In my opinion, that can be pretty daunting. My question is this, and maybe it's a little silly, but do you guys ever get nervous? As I've mentioned in previous feedback, I'm an avid desktop flight simulation enthusiast, and I know that when I'm flying into a busy, busy airspace virtually and I'm talking to someone over the internet who's providing real ATC instruction, and I'm doing the work of two pilots, I'm awfully thankful that I can just push pause sometimes because it can be pretty overwhelming. I bet you wish you could do that sometimes. I can see where one could easily let the plane get ahead of you if you're not careful. And if I was personally in a real plane, I'd be pretty nerved up. 
Now, I suppose it's like any other job. After a while, you've done it so much that it probably doesn't bother you anymore. But earlier in your career, flying the line, how'd you guys personally feel? So that's my question, guys. Thanks again. And if you're ever up in the Portland, Maine area, I'd love to get together for a meetup. Blue skies and smooth air. Take care. All right. So we have another Maine man in addition to Micah. Uh, so uh, looks like a, uh, another meetup in uh, Portland, Maine is starting to uh, shape up, perhaps. Um, getting nervous. Um, I, I think when I, I remember starting out learning how to fly and uh, having to talk on the radio at the same time as fly the airplane was something that was quite nerve-wracking or made me nervous but then after a while as mark alludes to you know after you do something over and over and over again uh it becomes commonplace and you know you don't really get nervous about it anymore and i i think that for most of us by the time we get to the major airline that we're flying for as uh, dana and nick and i do the we don't have any nerves anymore (laughs) you're shot Uh, so uh (laughs) But uh, in, in, even going into um, uh, going into Chicago O'Hare uh, the, for the first time, uh, that was a little nerve wracking. But I was sitting uh, as a flight engineer, and I wasn't sitting in one of the control seats, and I wasn't one of those who had to talk on the radio and answer all of the instructions that were just being given in, in a in an amazing at an amazing pace and actually no, no time to even respond. Uh, I was just in awe regarding, you know, that. And if I were sitting in one of the seats, uh, on that day, instead of sitting at the panel, I may have been nervous, but, uh, by the time I finally started flying an airplane, uh, in the, uh, for the airlines, um, really nothing made me nervous. I was nervous today. Were you? Yeah. Doing I always get I always get nervous uh, when a particular government employee shows up and saying they're going to be riding in my jump seat. Ah, yeah, the feds—they're there the to feds. help. <laughs> and this, yeah, he's here, and he had. When I say he had no personality, I felt <laughs> like I was talking to a stone. Uh, yeah, it it was. I mean, I don't get very nervous, but, you know, obviously they're, they're watching every little thing you do. They watch, uh, you know, check the logbook. They check everybody's medical and licenses. So that type, you know, that is in itself nerve wracking. I know I'm going to be very nervous upcoming when I uh, go through training. Uh, I am terrible in the simulator. The worst uh, check ride so I do get nervous when I go in the sim, and even more so uh, when once I uh, come out to the line and have that fed ride when yeah. I'm upgrading to captain. Yeah, I, I know It'll I'll be, be nervous, and so yeah. it, it's it's. I'm, I'm sure I'll be fine, Jeff, but still, I, I still get nervous. I thought you were so, going to say the reason why you were nervous today was that you were flying with uh, Captain Tony. Well. <clears throat> I love Tony. He's a great guy. I do guy. too. He's a good friend. He's, he's, he's really, he's really, uh, uh, he's just very, he is very methodical and it's very good. And, and, and when I say methodical, it's in a very good way. He thinks about things. He makes good decisions. Um, and it's, you know, captains like uh, Tony and Jeff. And I've never had the opportunity to fly with Nick. I mean, it, it, he's a great uh, role model. So, um, 
I guess the, the long answer to everything about getting nervous is we all get nervous. I get nervous coming on the show. Uh, I listen to my, I listen to myself back and I say, oh, you sound like a complete idiot, Dana. <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> it didn't come out the way you wanted to come out. And I'm sitting there yelling at the damn phone as it's playing and saying, oh, that, so, you know, no, why don't you say this? <laughs> Well, we we, so, uh, we all yeah. do that. I mean, I, I, when I'm in the middle of answering a question, I'm thinking, I'm listening to myself answering the question going, what the heck are you saying at this point? Where are you going <laughs> exactly. with this sentence? And I don't, yeah, don't really I can, know. I can relate to that. <laughs> well, I, but, you know, you know I, I'm, 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 a, I'm a guy from Boston. I'm the guy from Boston and, and you know, kind of have that uh, street, uh, street talk where both you guys are very eloquent speakers and even <laughs> Steph. So being that I'm, I'm kind of rough around the edges sometimes when i listen to myself back oh no, no. i don't like what i no, hear see that's but. that's what we love about you though dana and that's what uh you know you have so much appeal to um so many of the pe- people that listen to the show it's uh you know you everybody's it's, different you know we're all every everybody is different yeah you both have here i don't <laughs> <laughs> you're both skinny i'm fat Okay, well, this nah. is. Uh... So, anyways, I'm only kidding. So, I'm not sure where this is going? In, 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 in all seriousness, I mean, even just doing the show, or or, mm-hmm. uh, or you know, out in the line doing something that you not don't normally do. I mean, when was the last time you shot a, a localizer back horse? Yeah, it's been a while. Oh, you're talking all about right, so, uh, flying, right? Yeah, flying. So okay, yeah, localizer or, 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 on purpose, on DB, or, on purpose, or, or, yes. or VOR approach. <laughs> What <laughs> what are those, right? Yeah. yeah but so yeah. if if you're flying along and the weather's low and we haven't shot a VOR or a localizer or a localizer back course in a long time, your pucker factor and your nervous factor kind of comes up. Yeah. Well, yeah. that's but it can be a good thing, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, you find. I mean, is. it it, it uh, grabs your attention. It makes you a little bit more uh, aware of what's going on. It heightens your awareness and makes you more attentive. Too much. Uh, in the way of nerves, of course, that becomes debilitating. But uh, that little little bit of uh, stomach-turning um, nervousness just makes you better, I think, at doing your job because it makes you really on your metal sometimes. Yeah, I absolutely, absolutely agree. I mean, this this morning, I mean, this trip, you fly with a captain that, that you know really well, and uh, you have a good repertoire with, like, I have with Tony. I mean, it's my third maybe even my fourth trip flying. I think it's my third, third trip flying with Tony. So, you know, you kind of know each other and, and uh, just kind of do things as, as we're supposed to do them. But, you know, even in, in that scenario, we're kind of doing things and it's not as formal, you know, even though we're doing the job properly, it's not as formal. And then today we had the FAA in the jump seat and both of us are like, bang, bang, bang. I mean, did everything exactly as written in the book backing each other up so you know you can it it, having that nervousness there was a very um positive thing today because i mean the flight went you know almost perfectly with 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 no issues excellent so you're right what about you captain nick i can't imagine you ever get nervous uh i think situations make me nervous but more in the anticipation and the actual um doing of them so you know it's when you've you're looking you're halfway across the pond and you're looking uh down at your fuel you've had a reroute uh you haven't got your levels you're down close to minimums and you're anticipating the things that might occur when you get in towards 
uh, your destination uh, uh, and you think, well, I hope we don't have to hold too much because then we're going to have to make some difficult fuel decisions here. We might have to divert where we might be. And all these things are sort of playing over in your mind. And that kind of goes, oh, yeah, this, we might have to go to an airfield, but it'll check all the weathers. And, and actually, it's making you really think hard about what is about to happen. And in reality, that's actually not a bad thing at all, because when you get there, you've covered all the possible uh, decisions and choices you might have to make. And then uh, if one, if you have to make one of those choices, you're kind of pre-prepared for it. And generally speaking, uh, it's usually very straightforward. You know, and it all goes very smoothly. You go, well, I shouldn't even have worried. So they're the kind of periods when I, I have to, you know, make sure that I'm just uh, not winding myself up uh, unnecessarily. But I think it's a good thing, as I just mentioned, to to let that feeling encompass you a little bit, just so it brings you, makes you more aware, rather than uh, letting it, and if you ever let it overcome you, then that's not a good situation at all. Yeah, I think that's our, our brain's way of, you know, making us more attentive, you know, like uh, adrenaline is flowing and our your heart rate is higher and uh it's just making us more aware uh and sensitive to things and uh it it, it there's a reason for it and uh as you said usually um being a little bit nervous about something kind of heightens your performance although if it gets too out of hand then i guess it has the opposite effect and that's i think uh you know the the difference between people uh who can do the kind of job that we do flying airplanes, high performance airplanes with, you know, hundreds of passengers and, and those who can't learn early on that uh, they just, uh, you know, really don't have what it takes to, you know, overcome the, uh, the nervousness and that has a detrimental effect. I think often uh, when you've been in a really tense situation, things have not gone well, but you've managed to achieve a, a, a good result. Uh, you don't realize quite how uh, tense and, and uh, you've been and how the situation has affected you until after the event. And then there's this huge letdown as the adrenaline starts to drain out your system and you suddenly have this amazing wave of exhaustion. And, uh, you know, you just feel quite, um, you know, limp and, oh, God, love me. I'm so glad we're now on the ground and safe. Whereas only a few minutes earlier, you are absolutely you're on top of everything, and then all of a sudden, go goes out of you, and you know you're going, oh, oh thank God that one's over. Yeah. I can go home and relax. We really earned a dollar today, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, that feeling of letdown is an indication of just how much was going on in your small little grey matter mm-hmm. only a few minutes earlier. And I would I would argue that's actually what we are paid really to do. I mean, most of the time we as pilots are, you know, kind of a little low key and things go on a normal pace. But when things are really starting to hit the fan and we have to make decisions and, and make sure that we make the right decisions and make them on the, you know, in a very, very expedited way, um, that's what we really are paid for. It's the hours yep. of boredom punctuated by the few minutes of sheer terror. And, and most you know, passengers don't ever know you know, more times than not that anything ever went wrong on the airplane. And that's what our job is, you know, to make sure that we minimize any exposure and, and, and minimize and mitigate the risks. 
involved with the flying an airplane because listen, I mean, I was driving to work uh, yeah the other day and looked up on the board and they had you know 682 fatalities so far this year on Georgia roads and uh, how many pet, you know how many fatalities. Uh, you know, in the United States, uh, worldwide, I don't know what you know. I don't know what the number is there, but the United States is zero. I mean, we we do a really good job of mitigating the risk, and and that's what we truly get paid for. Yep, coolness under fire, right? Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, with that, we're going to go ahead and end this week's episode. Um, let's see. If you want to learn more about the show, uh, head over to airlinepilotguy.com, our website. And you can learn more about the, uh, the crew and the community. Uh, you can learn about the coffee fund. And uh, if you want to get some Acme Airlines merchandise, that's where you would go for that as well. Um, also, information about uh, apps for both the iOS and Android platforms is available there as well as in the show notes. Uh, let's see. Social media. Would uh, somebody like to tackle that one? Uh, you can find us in Facebook at uh, www.facebook.com uh, forward slash airline pilot guy. Okay. Also on Twitter uh, at APG crew. And also um, we have something called our perpetual chat Slack. room. But I think that uh, Hillel would be better at explaining that. APG listeners, if you want to be part of our Slack team, please send an email address on Twitter. To me, Hillel, H-I-1-1-E-1. Over on Slack, we plan events. We plan meetups. We talk about the episodes. We gather feedback. If you want to be part of the team, send me a tweet. See you there. All right. And Hillel, answer that phone, darn it. Oh, wait a minute. Nope, that's Captain Nick's phone. <laughs> is, it, is, it, is it time for you to go? Was that the battle call? Yeah, sorry about that. That's a <laughs> wake-up okay. call. That's my wake-up call, yeah. Oh, okay. Excellent. Well, wake up. <laughs> wake up. <laughs> wake up, yeah. Anyway, so, uh, yeah, please do uh, check out. Please do check out Slack. Uh, as Hillel mentioned, uh, contact him, HI11E1, uh, with your email address, and you can be part of that, and that's where you can find, uh, well, as he, he talked about it. He does a better job of talking about it than I do. Uh, let's see, what else? Um, we're not sure, you know, yet, as we really never are, uh, what uh, our next episode or when our next episode will occur, but uh, sometime next week. And uh, I hope that everybody uh, has a has a wonderful rest of your week and weekend, and uh, look forward to uh, hanging out with you all again on the next episode. And until then, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care. God bless. Talons, Douglas. <laughs> Bye, guys. Have a great week. Good day. WAPG Airline Pilot Guy.